High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, science whizzes, girls next door, aspiring photographers. Oh, and a special shout out today to your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. But first, school is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. Hope you were able to check out our Hall of Fame episode. Won't reveal the inductees here because I want you to listen to it. We inducted a huge class of new High School Slumber Party Hall of Famers. Thank you, esteemed panel, for voting. Thank you guys always for listening. And check that episode out wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Or, of course, at the flagship on cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. The Hall of Fame. It's a big deal. Some surprises this year, to be honest with you. A lot of surprises. Some people that I thought should have got in didn't get in. I think everyone who got in deserved it. I'm just surprised in the order. You know, it's only our second class ever. So pretty much everyone who gets in deserves it, as we're still catching up. But, yeah, wow. Big surprises, including... Someone from the Spider-Man franchise. And no, I'm not talking about Kiki Dunst. Kirsten Dunst was elected last year, and well-deserving. Someone else from the entire franchise. And yup, I said it. Today, we are starting off Spider-Month, Spider-Month, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Month. Because Spider-Man No Way Home comes out 16th to 17th, depending where you are. So we're going to gear up with all the Spider-Man movies we haven't covered until then. Mike Manzi will be my co-host for that, my co-pilot, Spider-Manzi, as I call him on this episode. Can't wait for you to listen to that. If you don't like Spider-Man, we'll have some other episodes this month, but you should like Spider-Man. He's the franchise. We're starting off, of course, with 2002s, that's a weird way to say it, 2002s, Spider-Man. Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst. This movie really changed the game. We'll get into it today. Another thing about this whole series, too, just want to remind you, we have covered some Spider-Man films between me and Mike. So on this show, we covered Spider-Man Homecoming, quintessential superhero high school movie. We've also covered the sequel, Spider-Man Far From Home, study abroad program during high school. I love it. Not every Spider-Man movie. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The bell doesn't dismiss you. I dismiss you. I'm in the middle of my Spider-Man chat. Not every Spider-Man movie is a high school movie. For example, we will not be covering Spider-Man 2 in this franchise because he graduates in Spider-Man 1, so it doesn't really count. 
Also, we covered Spider-Man 3 on Mike Manzi's show, Third Time's a Charm, because it is a third film. And if there was going to be an Amazing Spider-Man 3, we wouldn't cover it, but they never got there. We'll almost get there, though, as we'll be covering Amazing Spider-Man's 1 and 2. So before we get into Spider-Man today, just want to give you a heads up. At the end of this episode, there's going to be a conversation with me and the foodie films man, Kyle Reinfried. We just saw Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza is P.T. Anderson's new movie, Paul Thomas Anderson, the great, great director. And it's really important to us because, A, it is a teen movie. P.T. Anderson did a teen movie. So we're going to talk about it on this podcast but just not yet, because it doesn't go to wide release until Christmas. We didn't think it was fair, but Kyle and I have some initial reactions, spoiler-free reactions. I get some people don't even want to hear that, so when you get to that part, just skip it. That's totally fine, but it'll come directly after this episode, so just warning you. Just skip ahead, and you'll get to the ending ending if you really want, but like I said, there's no spoilers, so don't worry. Another reason it's important to me and Kyle is that its star is Phil Seymour Hoffman's son. That's right. Cooper Hoffman is the star. You should know by now that Kyle and I are both big fans of Phil Seymour Hoffman. We did a podcast here on the Cage Club Podcast Network entitled P.S. I Love Hoffman. We didn't think we'd be able to do another Hoffman movie. Well, it's not the big man, but it's his son. And again, we watched it. Can't wait to talk about it in full sometime on this show. But also, can't wait for you to listen to our little exciting preview at the end of the episode. So once again, that'll come at the end of the episode. And hey, if you don't like even remotely spoiling things, which again, we don't spoil, it's spoiler free, but hit me up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, High School Slumber Party, or email us at highschoolslumberparty at gmail.com. That's highschoolslumberparty at gmail.com. But right now, let's focus on the film that started it all. So pack your favorite jammies, tell your mother to sit me up Ryan's, because we're about to get our party on. And what better way to take away Spider Month, to fly web sling into Spider Month, I should say, than by that great Danny Elfman score from the original movie. Still one of my favorite scores of all time. Class dismissed. supposed to happen at like 5.30, but it's not, I don't know. Maybe 5.30 Pacific. Yeah, they're having a live event in LA. Like, the last time they did anything like that was when uh, The Force Awakens opened. They showed the trailer. I remember Joey went to the theater just to see the trailer. <laughs> That's funny to think about, like, these days. Yeah, they did it at the Draft House, and uh, they showed it twice, and it was the Force Awakens trailer, and he's like, yeah, that's like, I never watch trailers, but I like... You know, 
<laughs> it's almost like it doesn't count because it's in the theater. Yeah, you know? kind of. Like it was more of an event, right? A short film. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. What you're alluding to there, that's why we're here. It's the December month of Spider-Man here in High School Slumber Party. I don't know. What should we call it? Wait, have we started? What, what's happening, Brian? <laughs> I'm just starting. I'm rolling in. I'm rolling oh, in. You're swinging in. Swinging the, in, uh, yeah. <laughs> through the alleyways of New York City. It, it, it's not web fluid. It's coming out of my glands for this one. Oh, no. I was hoping we were going to avoid all that. <laughs> but I guess not. Um, yeah, man. Thank you for having me, especially for this series. Like I Now, this is my bread and butter you know Corey's are one thing but <laughs> spider-man is an entirely different thing altogether and uh spider yeah, month like... sorry that's what we'll call it spider month that's yeah that's great i guess we're leading up to a big crossover between our shows since uh another spider-man 3 is on the precipice of release and i have a show called third times a charm that i'm still doing for some reason <laughs> it's still going on <laughs> so uh might as well take advantage of some of your listenership and try and poach a couple of those people over to uh to my feed uh next month when uh when we drop a dueling episodes for the next spider-man movie mike you brought up the quarries and I, i'm sorry i'm sorry i have to and we, we might get into it later, we might not, but there was a point, um, well, there's a long history of the Spider-Man film. and just Very it, long, it, very long. It getting made, but like, I, I read that like, Corman briefly had the rights. Oh boy. And I was thinking, could you imagine a Corman-produced Spider-Man with Corey Haim as like Peter Parker and Corey Feldman as as, as Harry Osborn. As, as Harry Osborn. That'd be, I'd oh, watch it. <laughs> you just blew my mind, Brian. You just put the peanut butter with the jelly. That's insane. I wouldn't have been surprised if that was like, if one of the Corys was floated around in the past for this, because you're right, this has had a very, like, trying to get a Spider-Man film, you know, it, it tanked canon pictures, right? Like, it's notoriously the film that they never got to make, the last movie they never made, and, like, all the James Cameron stuff, a lot of which is is still oh. in this movie, you know, and uh, the Sam Raimi stuff, and the, the Tobey Maguire saga, like, there's so much going on. I can't wait to get into it, that's for sure. Mike, introduce yourself so we can do this. Oh, right, so, I am the amazing Mike Manzi, RHS, <laughs> class of 97. I wish I could say go arachnids, but we're the, <laughs> we're the darn maroons, you know? <laughs> the sensational Mike Manzi, the uncanny Mike Manzi, you already yeah. said amazing, the... Peter Parker, Mike Manzi. Because <laughs> there was once a comic Peter Parker Spider-Man, so just to get all that. <laughs> Spider-Manzi. There we go. Now, there we are. You, you, you just won. Spider-Manzi, Spider-Manzi. You know, in my entire life, that never occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Like, as a kid, it's funny because I tracked down the very first comic I recall owning as a very small toddler, and it was actually a what if. It was what if Uncle Ben had never died. But oh. I had always remembered the cover because it was like, it was half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man, and then around him in a web were like the faces of everybody he knew. And it was just like such a iconic cover oh, as so I've many. Seen, yeah, that's a great cover. I've seen yeah, that cover. Yeah, it's terrific. Spider-Man's been a part of my life since I've been able to like to see. Basically. Yeah, and I'm so excited that we're going to get later this month Spider-Man No Way Home. I mean, from what we understand, the trailer drops today as we're recording, so we don't know all the details yet, 
but there are a lot of rumors of this crazy ass multiverse that's going to combine all these Spider-Man movies. And again, we're going to try on High School Slumber Party. We're going to talk more about the high school ones, but and again, Mike, with your permission, I thought about this all day, and I want to do 2002 Spider-Man. I want to okay. do the Amazing Spider-Man because those are both like the high school ones, right? Yeah. Maybe Amazing Sp- Amazing Spider-Man Two is is I believe senior year for Andrew Garfield, so I think we have to do that. Yeah, I think so. I think we'll have to do that into the Spider Verse, possibly. We'll see. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't even. Uh, I was only considering the live action stuff, but great call. But if you think about it, like the success of Spider Verse really told Marvel, hey. People might like this multiverse, you know? So, yeah. When we start talking about, like, the Andrew Garfield ones, we can get into the Sony leaks and all of that kind of great yeah. stuff that led to, ultimately, like, the deals with Marvel and the MCU and the crossing over and everything that's, like, happening now. Thank you, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il. Wasn't it 4chan? I thought he did it. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought that was the one, because, like, James Franco... Who we'll talk about today? Mm-hmm. Didn't he make that movie? And then that's how, how the hacks. The, the movie, the interview, yeah, about them going over to North Korea with Seth Rogen and interviewing Kim Jong Il or Ong or one of them. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't, you know. Uh, well, but yeah, I think that that sparked sort of like something against Sony, yeah, like in trying to dismantle them in some fashion. Think about the multiverse that exists even there. James Franco, James Franco here. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very it's different so, Franco, but... <laughs> yeah, it's very different. It's so crazy. Mike, people love when you get on for comics. One of the favorite slumber episodes is the Shazam episode. Oh. So I, I know we're going to get a little bit into the weeds here, even for me, though. Like, I, I didn't know Shazam from whoever, but I loved Spider-Man uh, growing up. I'm not a huge comic book guy, but the little comic books I did have were Spider-Man comics. I loved the 90s cartoon that was more in, in my era. But Spider-Man... Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was born in Queens. My family's from Queens. To have, like, a hometown superhero like Spider-Man... For God's sake, Spider-Man is a Mets fan. I'm a Mets fan. He got married in Shea Stadium in real life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys, uh, slumbers, are aware, but, like, there was a huge event. It sold out Shea Stadium with, like, a guy dressed as Spider-Man marrying Mary Jane. Like, that actually happened in real life. That's how important Spider-Man is to Queens in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> Represent. (laughs) Yeah, I I love Spider-Man. And for me, growing up, and I know it's different for different eras, but for me, for Marvel, he's the franchise. He's the franchise. It's as simple as that. I know a lot of kids grew up with seeing Iron Man as a franchise and Captain America as a franchise in the MCU because of just how things went. But for for me growing up, he was our Superman on on the Marvel side. So what's... What's your history with Spider-Man? Yeah, like, I've been a fan forever. Like, when I was a little kid, I remember Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which you could watch right now on Disney+, Plus, which is him, Firestorm, and Iceman going around uh, in some great web-swinging adventures and some cool animation and stuff. And I think that was paired with a Hulk cartoon when I was a little kid. Also, they would rerun, so there was a very limited live-action Spider-Man series in the late 70s, and they would rerun those when I was a kid on, like, Channel 11, and um, they cut, like, some of those into feature-length 
television films. Uh, so I remember watching that and renting those from the video store. And like I mentioned, like my first comic book was Spider-Man. He just was always there and always resonated. And, you know, I didn't really realize, I think there's a reason why. Like, I think like it's kind of amazing, you know, if I could maybe... I feel like the story of Spider-Man is pretty well known, so I'm not going to reveal a lot of, like, you know, trivial tidbits in the telling of this tale or anything like that. But I just kind of feel like it's remarkable that, like, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, like, literally sat down to try and create, like, this specific type of character. They're like, there were teenage comics at the time, but it was like Archie and romance and and things like that, I, I would assume, mostly. And a lot of the superheroes were like adult men, you know? I mean, we talked about Shazam and things like that, but he even turned into a grown man and they were super strong and they would fly and they had like these important jobs as adults and stuff. And so like, they were like, hey, we should do something for, you know, general audience of our readers, which are teenagers and kids and stuff. So like, let's make a superhero who's a kid. Let's give him real life problems. He'll have acne, he might get good grades, but, like, he's socially awkward, like, he's not a football hero, you know, like, he doesn't have a job, <laughs> like, all these kinds of, of issues that normal kids would face in real life and stuff, and then there would also just be the the fantasy of being able to put on the tights and go fight crime and, you know, be that version of yourself, too. Uh, but the, there's also always a bittersweet component with Spider-Man because he had that secret identity and he could never take credit for any of his work. And even if he could, he had J. Jonah Jameson, you know, claiming he's a menace. So there's just some kind of, like, catch-22 about his situation that felt more realistic to being, like, a real person. And that's what they set out to do, is to create a character with, like, real-life problems. And I think they did, like, a, a remarkable job with it. And what you're hitting on, Mike, they didn't just create Spider-Man. They created Peter Parker, who obviously is Spider-Man. But Peter Parker is so relatable. Peter Parker is just, like you said, he's called your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because he feels really like the boy next door. And not in a Superman way. I don't know. Uh, everything you're saying is so true. Love Peter Parker just as much as I love mm-hmm. Spider-Man. And you can't always say that about the alter ego, you know? Right, right. And and the book is really, at least, you know, from my recollection, when I was reading it in the, like, late 80s, early 90s mostly, but then I'd gone back to read a lot of that original run, the book's about Peter, you know? Like, it's not so much about Spider-Man. Like, he does, you know, he has a fantastic rogues gallery and all that kind of stuff, but it, I don't know, it just felt more like being Spider-Man got in the way of his life, you know? It wasn't like a caveat or anything. Like, it wasn't like, you know, as much as he wanted to do the right thing with his powers and stuff, it always just sort of never turned out the way he wanted to or the way he thought it would. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was more just about, like, being a kid trying to do the right thing. And I think that really does resonate with, with most people. And it's hard to imagine, you know, like, it's hard to think that, Marvel had sort of just become Marvel from being timely. Like they had just kind of, they were doing amazing fantasy stuff still, but like, not sure, like if they were still printing Captain America, I think they had sort of stopped doing stories with him for a while, but they had like, I believe they had like Thor. We're still in like the Silver Age, but like pretty much the only book that Marvel was printing was the Fantastic Four. This is like at the beginning of them sort of of Marvel as we know it. Right. And to think that he was there like at the very beginning is kind of mind boggling because of like 
how strong his presence still is and like looms over comics today. For sure. And my comic generation, and I know we have a couple great shows on the Cage Club Podcast Network that go really more deep into comics than I'll ever be, right? But my generation, it was Spider-Man and it was the X-Men, right? Like those are the ones I really grew up with comic book wise and even cartoon wise and on the dc side like growing up it was like the death of superman kind of stuff you know what i mean yeah batman getting his back broken in half (laughs) yeah it was robin robin getting murdered by the joker like that's my dc childhood (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know i'm again really really excited to just talk this one and talk just the history of this movie because as a kid I was waiting for this movie. Like, this is the one, like, are they ever going to make a Spider-Man movie? Who the hell knows? Because even as Spider-Man, even as Peter Parker, I should say, the character got older, it was still interesting. Like, him in college was interesting, you know? It was yeah. a big deal when he, like, met Venom when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that storyline. <laughs> are we going to watch Venom? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, like, too far. <laughs> I am joking. And we talked a little bit about uh, your favorite Topher Grace Venom on on the Spider-Man 3 episode. We won't be talking Spider-Man 3 again, but like like I said to you, I think the last time we spoke, there are certain third times of charm episodes that do belong in the High School Slumber Party canon. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But you're right, like Spider-Man is that kind of yeah, like it's interesting cuz like I remember when I I started I picked up reading him at somewhere along the way and like he had graduated college and was running a robotics lab and it was like what is going he's like now he's like Harry now he is like the Norman Osborn character kind of but like a nice guy and I was like oh well it still works like I don't know like you know they could always reboot it they could always you know make you forget he married Mary Jane or who whose identity is like they could take it wherever they need to and I feel like it always works because Peter Parker is so they always kind of stay true to who he is you know what I'm saying like I I don't know I, I just think he's very malleable and like you could do a lot and and that's I think evident too in characters like Venom, like there's a lot of spin-off characters. We, we're going to get like Miles Morales. We're going to get like, we're probably not going to talk about the freaking clone saga, but that was a whole <laughs> debacle during the nineties too, where we got like Ben Riley and the Scarlet spider and like all kinds of alternates. I mean, you know, even for crying out loud, there was a run in the aughts or the early or mid two thousands where Dr. Octopus is mind was swapped with spider-man's and and then peter parker in dr octopus's body died and dr octopus's mind was trapped in spider-man and he was like hey i'm spider-man now and it it just doesn't matter you could do like all this shit to him and it's still like oh that's interesting for a while like let's let's see where this goes that's hilarious (laughs) oh my god so this movie what what a history with this film i mean oh boy getting it made i I mean i read so many things online and we're gonna try not to bore you with it it's just fascinating to me so i feel like we should mention it and let's 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 start from the back like this movie the the trailer drops a year before it's supposed to came come out and i sent you that trailer this is 2002 so this trailer was 2001 i think around super bowl time so it was it was a long way before it yeah i think it was february or something yeah Yeah. so that that makes sense and you're like holy shit and this was a summer blockbuster so (laughs) 
this wasn't the time now, guys, where the internet and you read about all this shit. Oh, yeah, there was no internet. Like, I had just, you know, seen The Matrix the year before and understand, and, and then I got online. Like, like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, you don't understand. Like, I had dial up until, like, 2001. <laughs> and everything was rumors and hearsay. And when we say rumors, it's like, oh, my friend said he heard from somebody that they're making a Spider-Man movie. Yeah. It was really easy to keep things close to the vest. And when this, oh, like, yeah. when this teaser dropped and it famously got banned eventually because it's like a bank robbery and you don't know where it's going. And these bank robbers, they get in this helicopter and suddenly the helicopter is trapped and it pans out. And you see between the World Trade Center, because again, this is before September 11, 2001. Between the World Trade Centers, there's a huge spider web that has captured this helicopter. And then you see, like, the CGI Spider-Man, and it's like, coming next year, Spider-Man. And you're like, holy shit. And we had already gotten X-Men and shit like that, but no one knew, you know what I mean? And X-Men is Fox, so it's not like it's teased in X-Men or anything like that. But it was like, this is coming, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah, like, X-Men had come, and... It was a little more. It didn't really deliver in the way that I think people were expecting. Like I thought, it, I think it's fine and and all that. But like really, it was like Richard Donner's Superman, Tim Burton's Batman, Sam Raimi's Spider Man. Right? Like it had been like a good decade of kind of like kicking the hornet's nest and seeing what like superhero movies are about for a while. Like even Sam Raimi made Dark Man. Right. And I think it's one of the better ones because it's sort of more of an original property. It doesn't come from anywhere. But like most of these Marvel things like went straight to video. There was like a Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie, you know, and all kinds of weird shit was was uh, being attempted with superheroes and mostly off the back of the grim and dark Burton stuff. And we also got, you know, that whole franchise kind of went to a certain level as well right like it just it just ended up like pure camp uh so spider-man was really gonna be like a a new sort of like test to see like could you balance that comic book feel and the fun of spider-man in a time again even prior to 9-11 still but like in a time where superheroes were wearing black you had blade you had the x-men you had the matrixes Dude. and the neos and you know exactly yeah and even batman even batman and just think of wolverine who that iconic yellow costume they never let him wear it no you know? and also think of wolverine like uh like an ageless grumpy you know, old man, right? Like just a grumpy old man all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we ne- we never really got that comic Wolverine, and that's because also Hugh Jackman did an amazing job, and they weren't going to really change that character up. I think even today, if they introduce a new Wolverine, like they introduced all new like young X Men, they couldn't do that with Wolverine. I, I know for timeline wise, but I-, I think there'd be a riot if there was a new Wolverine. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's the one thing that people would be like, "What?" You know. It's crazy to think about, but you're absolutely right. Everything was so dark. Everything was in black. And you even see some of that here with the costuming. Like, they didn't want to go too comic booky. Now, in the MCU, people can look however they want, which is awesome. But back then, it was like, oh, we don't want them to look... You know, it had to be leathery and not, like, spandexy. Which I don't know why. I'm glad you mentioned The Matrix, too, because watching this movie today, The Matrix influenced so much of, like, the action shots in this. 
uh, like when Green Goblin's throwing things and the way Spider-Man moves. So we can't talk this movie without at least giving a nod to the Matrix here. Yeah, and like there's obviously this movie, you know, came after those movies, so it's going to build on on those films and stuff. But also like you just like it's shocking how Sam Raimi directed this movie so dynamically like they just mm-hmm. don't let you shoot movies like this anymore for some reason like i i can't wait for multiverse of madness which is his his next movie which is going to be the next doctor strange movie because like spider-man's movements his action poses all that stuff like that is ripped directly from the comics throughout the ages like it's todd mcfarlane and gil kane and and john ramita like all these all these different people who brought different sort of energy to spider-man is all like here and infused on the screen and so like i'm watching it like in shock for the first time you know you know like it is like flooring me just like how how well it's going and like just you know it's it's not a perfect film or anything but you can tell it's got the spirit of reading a spider-man comic because these people have that love for it and it's just like dripping off the screen and that's what i sort of love the most about this movie and and again i'll get into some we'll, we'll bring up like a lot of sam raimi throughout you know not just this episode i'm sure but like callbacks to him in other films and stuff but like yeah i was just shocked watching it just you know how dynamic it looked you just don't get these shots even in modern superhero films where they just almost feel the need not to cut to to give you a like a real-time placement in the action and stuff and it's like no like he's doing panels you know like he's cutting and it's on an angle and he's cutting and it's from like a distance and he's cutting and it's like oh cool i'm almost really like watching a comic book it's terrific it's the bridge really between the world we were talking about the blades the x-men's and to what we get in the mcu especially the early mcu like now yeah. we're now we're so far down the road uh, now we're gonna we're in la la land <laughs> but mike you hit on some good points and I, I wanted to start kind of at the back before we go to the history of this film because and it's something i think you touch on your show third time's a charm sometimes like sequels can really do damage to a film I think people were just sick of the Sam Raimi franchise by the third one. And it's really unfair because this one really, on this watch, it aged well. It really did. Yeah. Not yeah. everything, obviously, but most of it really did. I say it's a shame because I don't care what they'll say with the new film. This was not their original intention. Their original intention, Sony, was to erase this franchise when they made yeah. the Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> which is which is ridiculous. <laughs> it is amazing how how right you are. Like, here's the thing: is like they got Sam Raimi because he wasn't really Sam Raimi. Like, people knew him. If you loved the Evil Dead and you loved horror, you knew Sam Raimi. You know, but he was making a couple films. He made a western with Leo, which was pretty cool. He made a golf movie with Cheech, I think, which was all right. <laughs> he made a baseball. F- he did some Kevin Costner films. For love of the game, I love. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but like he wasn't like fucking Sam Raimi. You know, like he was to some of us. And like to be quite honest, I was I was very perplexed. I was like, how? Why Sam Raimi? Like he's a horror film director. And and what happened with the franchise, and especially the second movie, which is just just insane. Like I I watched that second movie, and I still don't know how they did that. Like it's amazing. I think it just you know they realized the franchise 
was like got bigger than Sam Raimi. Like the studio just was like, we've got all this money and now we're now we're in control. They were like, we don't really care. Just get the movie for this one. They're like, go get this movie done, Sam Raimi. We're not sure what Spider-Man is or what to do with him. He really lays the groundwork. They're off and running in the second one. It becomes like this fucking phenomenon. And the studio is just like takes it away from him. I don't know if that's what happened, but that's how those movies feel, right? Watching them in succession. It definitely feels that way. We talked a little bit about that on your show for the third one. And I think what we'll do here, um, even though the second one is very much not a high school movie, I think we'll have a little bit of a primer with another person. I won't say his name yet. Oh. Before we get into No Way Home, I think we'll have a primer just to kind of set us up what our expectations are, and then we'll do it. So we'll talk about that all the Doc Ock stuff there. But Mike, let's talk mm-hmm. about how we got to Sam Raimi on the, this long battle, right? There's so much literature on this. There's even like a separate article on there's Wikipedia books. about this. There's you're right. There's books on this. Apparently, uh, as I mentioned, Corman had the rights to this for a little bit, which is insane to me. But didn't he do like a, a Fantastic Four or like try? <laughs> he did. He did do a Fantastic Four movie. Yeah, just to hold on to the rights or, or something to that effect. I feel like the rights to everything floated through his fingers at one <laughs> point in time, right? Yeah, but I think the real story here is how early Marvel lost or kind of gave up those rights, right? Early. Like that's that's the crazy. They didn't have a film department, granted, but like they were not making those types of monies that they could have off of Spider-Man at the time. This is not one that they sold later, like in the pre-Iron Man thing. This right, is, yeah, yeah. This is one they sold very early on when they were just a comic book studio and they were dying, you know? And it's just like, hey, you, I, I don't know the original price. I'd have to look it up, but it wasn't anything that was profitable for them. No, you know? yeah. And this is, this is all... Sp- pre-speculation boom as well like we're gonna have to touch on that too and you know might have to post a link for some of the younger listeners as to what the 90s comic boom and collapse was but you know no one could have predicted that and that was where Todd McFarlane sort of took over Spider-Man for a while and and reinvigorated sort of gave him more life and re sort of invigorated him in the audience's eyes of the readership and stuff so like this is all before like Spider-Man was just whatever kind of i mean he was good he was a flagship title but like he wasn't a superstar i feel and this is gonna hurt your feelings mike it really is but (laughs) but it is in a couple articles i read basically for a while what killed the superhero movie in hollywood's eyes was the lack of success for one of your beloved Superman 3. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> poor Richard Lester, man. You know? <laughs> um, and, and you mentioned the Tim Burton Batman. Ironically, if we look at history, it's similar to the Nolan Batman. Not like in look and style, but uh, in its independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once it got spun off to Schumacher and stuff, it was pretty much like, like you said, super campy. I mean, the Batman, the Keaton Batmans were hits, but they weren't like genre starters or universe builders. Just like the Nolan Batmans weren't really universe builders. They were more standalone stuff. I mention it because from the time of Superman 3 to the time of this movie, people are thinking about getting Spider-Man off the ground. No pun intended, you know? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I think you know a little bit more about the canon films thing than I do, but they were the ones really, really pushing for a while to get this Spider-Man movie made. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Canon Films notorious for you know Chuck Norris action movies, sort of like your C level stuff, your death, your Death Wish series, and I mean, great stuff, but complete and total schlock. But like, <laughs> extremely well done, you know, fun, like fun things. But like, they never were really so much a household name as much as like, like this. Like, I don't know how I want to phrase this, but like. They got a hold of the Superman property after Superman 3 and made Superman 4 Quest for Peace, okay? And if you've seen that, then, you know, thank your lucky stars they weren't able to make a Spider-Man movie. But they had the <laughs> ambition. They had the ambition that they could pull it off. And, like, I think Superman 4, and a combination of Superman 4 and Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie, ultimately bankrupt the studio and then they had to sell the rights or give up the rights to Spider-Man and it changed hands from there. But like the legacy of canon films and like Larson is sort of a canon historian into in his own right as well. We, he could talk canon for hours, but you know, it's just, it was, it was an odd kind of pivot for them to be like, all right, we're making these like really kind of exploitation action films okay and like we're really well known for that like let's start making wholesome family entertainment <laughs> like, let's start <laughs> and they swung so hard like superman he-man spider-man like i just admired them and still do to this day just the balls of the studio to uh to just even want to go there and, and just to, they'd always just tried to be you know big players and they'd had hits I think over the top with Stallone as a canon oh film. yeah you know there's a bunch out there like they they made their headway from time to time but Spider-Man there's no way like even with Roger Corman when you watch that Fantastic Four movie like it's it's kind of the same script they ended up making with Tim Story uh you know with like Jessica Alba and everything it's kind of the same script it's just like there's no money there's no quality there's you know there's no special effects so like it, it looks like a high school production most of the time <laughs> uh so like that is sort of the caliber of studio that spider-man kind of had to had to sort of sit in for a while so to, to get our teenage wall crawler off the ground it's going to go through a bunch of now infamous iterations this is the first time i ever read this one but after canon mgm gets the rights and they were really thinking of making a spider-man movie where arnold would play doc ock arnold schwarzenegger which oh. is like, what? <laughs> he played Mr. Freeze, so... <laughs> Eventually, yeah. <laughs> but we alluded to this one, and this is probably one of the bigger moments if you're writing the book about how Spider-Man got made, is James Cameron's desire to make this movie after the success of Terminator 2. Yeah. He wrote a treatment. I don't know if anyone's ever... Re- I know people have read it in the studio, but have they ever made that public? I would love to see it. I believe I believe it's out there. If I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a copy out there the wikipedia article had like this amazing note that i just wanted to read word for word in james cameron's treatment the story climaxes with a battle on top of the world trade center and had peter parker revealing his identity to mary jane watson in addition the treatment also was heavy on profanity and had spider-man and mary jane having sex on the brooklyn bridge whoa i didn't hear that uh i mean this movie is pg-13 but they never drop an f-bomb <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny that note about the profanity because like uh in the last two Spider-Man movies it ends 
with characters getting cut off by saying what the fuck. Like at the end of Homecoming, Aunt May catches Spider-Man and she goes, what the fuck? And they cut the credits. And at the end of the the last one, Peter Parker sees the news about his identity revealed and he goes like, what the fuck? And I think like, they, I think that's what happened. So that's a funny note. I was just watching the new Bond and spoilers for that. Cute um, M drops an F-bomb, I think for the first time in Bond history. Someone says the F word in a, in a Bond film, and like that was jarring. I was like, did M just drop the F bomb? Anyway. <laughs> We're going to talk a little Bond here, Mike, because I, I found that interesting aspect of the lore. Wait, did the Broccolis have control of this at some point? So here's, here's what happened, Mike. James Cameron writes this thing. It's not what people are looking for, because it's, it's like Terminator 2. It has the vibe of Terminator 2. But it's Spider-Man. I don't even think he was a teenager because, I mean, I don't I hope they're not showing teenage sex on the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, I mean, teenagers have sex, but Peter Parker doesn't as a kid. Like, yes. That's the thing. But, like, you know, you would think after T2, you'd be like, sure, give him Spider-Man. Like, that has a teenage kid in it with a pretty decent... Like, that was an unknown Eddie Furlong, and he still delivered a pretty decent performance. Imagine what James Wait. Cameron could have done with an actual teenager. Is Terminator 2 a teen film? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Uh oh. <laughs> um, Put that. What do, what do you call? Table that. Table that for a minute. <laughs> so this is an interesting, interesting tidbit that I found that I did not know, Mike. While Cameron is concepting this and they're thinking of making it, a big iceberg hits. <laughs> well, well, that's one thing, right? We know how long James Cameron takes to make anything, anyway. So. Forget him for a second. But I believe he's doing it with MGM, who has the rights to bond, as we know. Yes. Columbia gets this idea that they own they own some... Again, if you, if you slumbers know out there, let me know. But I believe <laughs> it's Columbia slash Sony who makes that fake Bond movie. Uh, it's not a fake Bond movie. Okay, I, okay. I know what you're saying. During the, the during non broccoli during Roger Moore's run, Sean Connery decided he wanted to keep being James Bond, so they remade Thunderball and released it the same year. As, so there were two Bond films in one year that year. Yeah, so it's a good movie, whatever. I can't remember what it's called. And funny enough, uh, the guy Brad from Superman 3 is the Bond uh, like heavy. He's like the bad, He's like one of the bad guys in there. So more Superman 3 connections. Well, there you go. I could be wrong because it is very convoluted. It's very confusing. It involves a lot of litigation and a lot of corporate mergers. Fun talk for High School Slumber Party. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe in the wake of cannons falling apart, Sony slash Columbia acquires their library. MGM also holds some sort of Spider-Man rights, and they're the ones working with James Cameron. They're trying to push this movie, MGM. Columbia... And slash Sony, who has released Thunderball, uh, the Bond thing, are threatening to release more Bond films because they don't have a franchise. The other thing they get the idea of, hey, we acquired the canon Spider-Man rights. We could probably make our own version of that film as a remake. You know what I mean? Skirting some lines. They are going to court against each other. MGM versus Sony of what they're allowed to do. And it's a groundbreaking case. And essentially there's a trade, a huge trade for us film nerds. Columbia slash Sony agrees not to make another Bond film if they can get the rights to the Spider-Man properties. And that's what actually ends up... 
Sorry, I'm reading my notes now. That's what ends up killing the Cameron one. They get the Cameron script. Cameron's not affiliated with them. But they're happy because they can now restart Bond and not be afraid that there's going to be competitive Bond. And then now Columbia's like, all right, we can try a franchise now. They see the success of X-Men and they're like, you know, we're going to do this. We're so excited, you know. Wow. Law school 101, sleepover night. (laughs) Cramming for the bar or whatever. Like copyright law um, is my favorite class in high school slumber party. But but it's crazy because that's what I remember like always hearing. Like I would buy this magazine at the comic shop called Wizard. Wizard Magazine is like pretty – like if you've shopped for comics in the 90s, you've seen Wizard Magazine. It is like – it was like the rag. It was like Entertainment Tonight for comics, okay? Which, by the way, was like the only way I heard of a Spider-Man movie back in the day was just like randomly watching Entertainment Tonight. But like in Wizard, they would always go over all of the legal battles and why they would never be able to make this movie. And they would do like fantasy casting and all that kind of shit and like who could direct it. And, you know, all that's where I found out all about this James Cameron, you know, stuff and a lot of people, I feel, just put it out of their heads. We're never going to get this movie. (laughs) It just sort of became like, forget about it. And then, yeah, I think it just came out of the blue. Like, it was just one day, it was just like, hey, the movie's made. Like, it's happening. Get ready. It's coming next year. And it was just like, all right. That's what I mean. When that trailer dropped, it was like, holy shit, it's finally happening. Yeah, because it it just, it disproves so many, like, rumors and, like, so much of that kind of stuff that just people had heard, you know? It was just like this, before there was, I feel like, not unfilmable in the way people talk about Watchmen, but just in the idea of like, oh, the the effects aren't going to be there. You're never going to be able to see him swing and like exactly. all that kind of shit. Like, it's just not there yet. Yeah, it's like, you know, what George Lucas was sort of preaching before the prequels, where he's just like, the technology just wasn't there. I just couldn't do it. And it's like, yeah, really do it yet? I don't know. So there was even... Even speculation about that kind of shit. The the biggest thing, Mike, that they were worried about was the web slinging. Simple as that. How the hell are you going to get this guy to web sling? You know? Yeah, I heard something like the final shot took an animator, like, the better part of the entire production to animate. (laughs) It's this one long CG shot of Spider-Man swinging through New York and, like, jumping off the Empire State Building at the end. And I heard, like, some kind of rumor that it took... Like, it took them the entire production just to work on that because entire shot. the fans did not want the camp style. As much as I enjoy, like, Adam West Batman, but we didn't want to see, like, Spider-Man just appear in a close-up shot on one building, then appear in a close-up shot in another building, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's camp inherent built into the character of him being a teenager, and, like, there's fun of course. there. But, but, no, you can't treat it like Batman 66, you're right. <laughs> like, that. that's what had happened to Batman... With Joel Schumacher, kind of, right? Where he ended up creating two children films. For yeah, the most part. essentially. Uh, <laughs> so the short list for, and I say short list, it's actually really long. For directors they wanted and interviewed was as follows. Roland Emmerich, Tim Burton, Tony Scott, Chris Columbus, Ang Lee, David Fincher, Jan DeBont. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yep, yep, yep. Jan DeBont, cameraman to the film Roar, <laughs> and, among other yeah, he's just a great cameraman and director. And M. Night Shyamalan, which is really early for him, I think, right? Or like, I don't know. Well, he, I think he had just done, he had Sixth Sense and he might have done Unbreakable. Oh, you're right, you're right. He did have Unbreakable too, yeah. 
The one note I read about Fincher is that he was actually very interested, but he did not want to do an origin story. He wanted to do specifically the comic The Night Gwen Stacy Died. Are you familiar with that one? Very much so, yeah. <laughs> that, they'll end up doing a version of that in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah, yeah, good call. But they were like, yeah, we can't start there, buddy. <laughs> you know, we want a franchise. Yeah, I suppose that would have been interesting, though. And, you know, nowadays you look at it and it's like, oh, he wanted to, maybe he wanted to do like a Batman Begins kind of thing where it's like we're telling the story of Spider-Man today, but we're going to cut back and see maybe how it happened through flashbacks or something like that could have been interesting. Oh, true. But, but that's sort of the route that Sony Marvel took when reintroducing Spider-Man, right? Like Homecoming is not an origin film. He has just been Spider-Man for a while. Well, that's because we just got two of them, and they were like... Oh, yeah, I know. That's... I mean, yes. I mean, everybody could tell you the origin of (laughs) Spider-Man with their eyes closed and an arm tied behind their back. (laughs) Essentially. But, of course, we end up getting Sam Raimi. I had no idea who he was at the time. Obviously, he had done Evil Dead. I didn't know what Evil Dead was in 2000, you know? I just didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I just got into horror, and barely. So... (laughs) Yeah. You got to come on for Army of Darkness, the third Evil Dead movie. <laughs> so who was Sam Raimi at the time? I mean, he's no James Cameron, which is like, I shudder to think like how slick that movie would have been. It might have been too too slick, you know? I, I don't know. And, and maybe too violent and stuff. But but Sam Raimi, I, is, that's a good question. It seems like a, he's, a, he's just like the guy who sold himself the best as the biggest Spider-Man fan. From everything I remember during the behind-the-scenes interviews with him, he was just like, this is why I got into filmmaking, to one day make a Spider-Man movie. And he's like, you know, people just consider me Mr. Horror, but like, you know, I have other interests, you know? <laughs> like, I was like, oh yeah, that never really occurred to me. And it's like, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid when this movie's coming out, being like, it never occurred to me that like, you could make more than one type of movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that you're not just labeled the horror director or anything. But but yeah, even even to me, like... I knew Evil Dead, but, like, I was into horror movies and stuff, and, like, the comic book crowd, I feel like, at conventions, I remember seeing tons of Evil Dead stuff uh, everywhere, and so, I don't know, you tell me, like, you know, what did people think of Sam Raimi in at the time? Like, what was his press release? I know most mainstream people didn't know him, but I had a couple friends who knew horror, like, oh, he's a horror guy, maybe my uncle told me, I- I'm not sure. And I remember thinking just as a kid, I'm in my freshman or sophomore year of high school around then. So it came out when I was in high school, guys. High school slumber party. Um, and people just being like, oh, no, trust me. He's a good director. This is going to be fun. I'm like, okay. The budget was yeah, $139 million, which is a lot, uh, especially at the time. Yeah. I did the math. It's like around today that would be $215 million. But it exceeds expectations. It makes $821 million eventually, which is insane. And they're like, holy shit, we have a hit. <laughs> we have a hit. And like you said, Mike, the franchise will go in different directions. The studio really tries to take hold of it. They want to franchise this out. Sam Raimi, not so much. And by the third one, it's such a tug that it kind of destroys everything. But let's start with the goody goodies here. And let's talk about the cast, because we're finally there. We're finally, finally ready to talk about this cast. <laughs> Toby Maguire as Spider-Man, which... Oh, my God. Slash Peter Parker, which 
hot take, but I think, I don't know if it's that hot, because I've heard a lot of people say this. Even though there are people out there who will shit on Tobey Maguire as an actor today, I really enjoyed his version of Peter Parker. I I do. I think, like, when I saw the movie, that's how I pictured Peter Parker. Just kind of this awkward, diminutive dork, you know? Yeah. So, I have a very kind of... I don't know why, but I have like a very complex (laughs) (laughs) relationship with Tobey Maguire movies, I guess you could say. Like, I never had an issue with them until for the Charlize Theron podcast I do with the podfather Joey, we do, we watch the Cider House Rules, and that movie just made me hate everybody in it. And I mean, Paul Rudd's in that movie for a minute, and I was like, I hate him in this movie. (laughs) And, And it really just like... Toby in that movie, like, everyone is just bad in that movie, like, even Michael Caine, and it just really bugged me, and I was like, okay, I get it, I understand, like, why people might be adverse to Tobey Maguire, you know. That being said, like, I don't hate him, like, I think that, like, he's good for certain roles, like, I think, like, he's that kind of like i don't know is that what a character actor is i mean he can't play everything but like there's a certain there's certain roles he can i think i think like this like this dorky sort of like loser kid or even in great gatsby i think that was a great role for him right as like this clueless what's happening just going along with whatever sort of see what's see how this you know unfolds maybe for my benefit like i think he's got certain roles that he's good for Now, Peter Parker is just such a great character. That's all I really saw watching this movie this time. You know, I think that Toby kind of just fades into the background for me. And I'm just watching this and I just see Peter Parker this time. So on some levels, I guess that's a good review for him, right? Like, yeah, after all, after all this time through through like my ups and downs with Toby on screen, like I can still watch the Spider-Man movies and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like I don't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me one one bit that it's him, and I I think that he uh, embodies the character well. Ironically, he was Sam Raimi's choice because he saw him in the Cider House Rules and was like, "Oh my god, I need that That's guy!" That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> That's hilarious. But throughout like the iterations of the film. There was a lot of like rumored cast as he talk about Leo was considered for that who's like Tobey Maguire's best friend in real life was con- yeah. was considered or at least at the time I don't know if they still are but was was <laughs> was considered in the Cameron role but also in this one uh, Freddie Prince Jr. Jude Law Chris Klein which is hilarious Freddie Prince Jr. interesting yeah honestly I th- remember at the time thinking oh I hope they cast Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> a little tall maybe right I don't know and he just played a heartthrob and she's all that maybe yeah a too, maybe a little too hunky Wes Bentley Heath Ledger Scott Speedman Jay Roden and even James Franco hmm. were th- rumored or at least talked yeah, about sunny himself james franco I can't, oh, man. <laughs> joe maginello by the way who we see here yes. also read for the part did not get it but they offered him something uh, else <laughs> alcide what's up sometimes <laughs> sometimes i think that they have people read for the part because they really want him in another role you know what i mean yeah yeah they want to see like some kind of contrast too you yeah. know for sure. Um, have you ever seen the screen test that Toby did? No, no. Is it online? Oh, 
Yeah, it's it's online. I think it's even on the Blu-rays and the DVDs, but it's really awesome. It's it's pretty much the alleyway scene when he saves Mary Jane minus the upside down kiss. Oh, I have seen it because dude, yeah. when this DVD came out, everyone got it and everyone chock full of chock full of a uh, special features. I do remember that. Oh, by the way, do you have the DVD? I do i i recently bought like the multi-disc trilogy set that even has spider-man 2.1 on it so i got all the goodies so normally we read the back of the dvd here i couldn't find a picture that had a summary uh but the people know spider-man anyway so let's move on with the cast because kirsten dunst high school slumber party hall of famer kirsten yeah, dunst jersey represent you know bring it on fame she wins the role of mary jane watson and if you take note mike they never fuck up mary jane or gwen stacy in the amazing series right like they always got to cast someone who they think is gonna be successful i don't know i don't know how to put it but look you get kirsten dunst who's like an it girl for her time you get emma stone right as gwen stacy in that series and who are they gonna cast as mj in that series i forgot it It was like cheyenne woodley oh shailene woodley yeah she actually shot footage that was never shown in the final film which is crazy right but she's a name obviously and then in the the new ones you have zendaya who's like the it girl of our generation so they they try not (laughs) Not our generation well Well, not not our generation the generation we're living in we should say Uh, yeah of this generation (laughs) uh yeah but kirsten dunst you know academy award nominated right for for vampire movie oh yeah wasn't she so like it's she wasn't just like she was like I feel like that was sort of like a get like it was like, oh, we need to we need sort of like some kind of safety. You know what I'm saying? Like we need like a safety net. We need someone who's like got a really solid career going on. I think is this before Marie Antoinette? I don't know. But like before Marie Antoinette, but after Bring It On and after a couple other things. Okay, after Bring It On, I think after Dick after. So like she was kind of on a roll, especially among teens. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're bringing in that MTV not the MTV generation that, that you were a part of, but like, you know, like the, the one, like, a, I guess maybe my, like, you know, we're not that far apart, but I guess mm-hmm. me growing up in high school, the, like... The TRL crowd, right? TRL like, crowd, great way to put yeah. it. So Kate Bosworth auditioned for the role. Elizabeth Banks auditioned for the role. I laugh because she's in the movie. She's in the movie. In the movie. Uh, Kate Hudson was actually offered the role, apparently, and turned it down. Oh. You know, she's really hot off of Almost Famous, so you could see why, like, she might have been the first choice. Yeah, Elijah Dushku, Mina Savari, and Jamie King also auditioned Interesting. for the role. I remember there being sort of like a bit of a hubbubaloo about like, why isn't it Gwen Stacy? Why is it Mary Jane? And it's like, well, Gwen Stacy lasted like five issues. Sorry, she died, and like no one remembers her right now. Like it's just that like when people think of Peter Parker, I feel like it's just Mary Jane, you know, and it just had been for so long. Especially and, and at like, that point, yeah, Mike. Yeah, Gwen Stacy had been out of the picture for so long, and her death had been permanent, and it was like one of the only permanent deaths in comic histories for decades, and <laughs> it was so, like, important that she stay buried, and, like, I think that was just all part of it. It was just like it had to be, you know, Mary Jane, and they really grafted much of her personality onto the Kirsten Dunst character, I feel. Like, it's sort of like a, an amalgam of Gwen and, and MJ from the comics. Yeah, and at the time, again, if you're a Spider-Man fan, it's Peter and MJ. I know people at the time were like, how is she going to look with red hair? Like, or is she going to have red hair? They were, like, a little bit concerned. She obviously does in this. And people really wanted the fan service for this movie i feel like they wanted her to say tiger you know what i mean and have her all catchphrases mm-hmm. so she delivers i think i, I like her Will- willem dafoe 
as Green Goblin. <laughs> Bobby Peru. <laughs> I oh love Willem God. Dafoe. I do because, you know, Platoon growing up was one of my favorite movies, which is weird to say. But it was. Yeah, he's an amazing actor. Yeah, super super awesome guy like i think the only problem here is like just kind of like looks like a like a evil dude like there's a resting mean face kind of thing going on but like aside from that he's terrific like what a great cast for the green goblin and everything for sure and, uh, I, I love his goblin voice and even uh i, I believe him as franco's dad you know uh, all that according to my sources which is the internet uh nicholas cage your guy, Jason Isaacs, yep. John Malkovich, and Jim Carrey were all considered for this role at one point. Oh, interesting. That, those are four different actors who would play it so differently than Willem Dafoe as well. So, but, oh, but Willem Dafoe, like, not the kind of guy that you see in big Hollywood blockbuster movies no, like this. You know what I mean? Not. Like, he would never do an Independence Day or something like that, right? And it's it was just sort of like gives the movie like the casting like that gives the movie kind of like like a mark of quality or something it's like oh you see Willem Dafoe's in this and you're like all right well that's interesting like he's known mostly for like kind of like extreme performances in mostly independent films or like stuff that's out of the box it's like he's gonna go mainstream okay like that that's a draw you know i feel like that's and investors are kind of like all right that's solid as well for sure and there was also a lot of opinions on who should the villain be people wanted venom right away because venom was super popular at the time but yeah that's who he was fighting in the comics at the time pretty much you know venom and yeah green goblin was like kind of his arch nemesis from days of your it, even doc it's Aqu- his joker it's his joker yes. you, you have, have to, to like yeah, i feel it's, like you have yeah to, exactly you have to <laughs> like even doc <laughs> doc ock and what's the lizard guy called just the Liz- Do- dr connors dr connors who gets a name drop yeah so i always i always knew him as just dr connors but is it just bad guy named the lizard <laughs> yeah pretty much he's the lizard you know i don't even know electro's real name right off the bat am i i couldn't max something maybe i have to say and i've always said this for as much as i love spider-man I always thought Batman had better villains than, than Spider-Man Ooh. did. I mean, Spider-Man kind of, they're all sort of from, like, the animal planet. Yeah, you know, yeah. Scorpion. So that's why it was like, uh... Rhino, and, yeah. You know, and then you even get Craven the Hunter. He's hunting on the things. <laughs> I think they leaned on that a little bit too much at times. But we do get yeah. Hobgoblin, too, eventually. But The whole goblin thing is fascinating <laughs> to me, just in general. You know, it's like a Wicked Witch sort of situation or something where he's, like, flying around, not on a broom, but he's, like, got a green face and a pointy hat. You know, it's just like... It's just it's like, conf- like the terror comes from the confusion. Somebody, you know? <laughs> right? No, it's true because and they, it's they, like what am I looking at? And they were totally pivoting to uh, like on the cartoon show and the comics at the time too because they were Spider-Man was interacting with Kingpin a lot at this time. You know, like more of those grounded bad guys. But they brought Green Goblin back here, and one of the big criticisms of the movie at the time was not the performance or anything like that, but people really did not like the suit, the helmet. Yeah. Hmm. That's one of the things I don't think ages well, but I can't even say that because, like I said, they didn't like it at the time. It's just him talking in the helmet, how big it is. Did you see the original, what they originally wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. They had a really complex sort of like mechanical face mask that was very expressive. And I remember after the movie came out, people were like, 
Willem Dafoe just should not have worn a mask. Like, he has a goblin grin. Like, he has a fa- the face of the Green Goblin. Just, you know, if he just wore, like, a stocking over his face that you could see through, like, a green stocking, it would have been fine. You didn't have to do the mask thing. Watching it this time, it's an interesting choice. I feel like they're just playing it safe. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to really actualize something. Like, that's such a comic book thing right like talking through a mask in, in in a comic book and having the mask be as expressive as the face under it and so like for the longest time i was like is the green goblin even wearing a mask in the comics and all this you know like why don't they do it that way and everything and the way that they sort of play off the tech being military grade things i'd be like all right it's it's like a helmet meant for the the theater of battle or something like that that's been augmented but like yeah you know, it's not the greatest, but I, I feel like it's a choice they were sort of backed into or something. Just do it without the helmet. He's such a great face. Don't hide his expressions like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the reveal of Norman Osborn being Green Goblin isn't isn't so much a big deal. Like, you could let it be known that it was Norman Osborn from the start, or at least like, oh, it's kind of hard to see who that guy is, but we'll know who he is anyway. And then I think the bigger reveal is Norman finding out who Peter is. Exactly. Like, that is really the, the clutch. If you want to hide his face, just, I think, more of a lower-profile military-style helmet that he only wears for, like, a scene or two before the reveal, you know? Yeah, yeah, and then and then just goggles with nothing over his mouth because you need that sort of rictus there grin you go. that yeah. he has. Yeah. Huh. Let's just, because we need to talk about the movie, uh, let's just quickly run through some other people in the cast. We have to talk your guy, James Franco, your favorite, uh, as <laughs> as Harry Osborn here. He was actually a very, like, among my friends growing up, people were really excited to see him in this movie because hmm. he had been in Freaks and Geeks and that early Apatow stuff, and that was that felt kind of indie to us. So you're like, oh, he's getting a big movie like this? That sounds really crazy to people right now, you know what I mean? And James Franco does not have the yeah. best reputation. But at the time, it almost felt like one of us was getting into this movie. I don't agree with that now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no idea who James Franco was at the time. Like, I remember watching some Freaks and Geeks, but I did not sort of put it together. And, like, I remember watching 40-Year-Old Virgin and just not knowing that that was, like, the, the same Seth Rogen or anything like that. <laughs> But, like, you know, down the line, it's amazing because I think before this movie, he had made, he was in Nicolas Cage's only film that Cage ever directed called Sonny, where he played the lead. Franco played the lead in that movie. And so, like, I'm just watching this movie now going, like, I think he just made that Nick Cage movie right before this. And, like, that's what he's been up to with the with the sort of James Dean haircut and, and all that kind of... He kind of acts this... He's, I feel like he hasn't really... I don't know how these movies line up in the timeline if it was the role he just came from. But, like, he's giving off, like, a very similar performance <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then, quickly... I want to bring him up because at the time I didn't know these actors, but I was so satisfied with the portrayals of with uncle Ben and aunt may. I was really like happy because like, that's how I pictured them to be like, right? Just this sweet loving couple. And the uncle Ben here, Ben Parker is played by Cliff Robertson, who is just a legend. This is the first movie I saw him in, obviously, but we talked about him over the summer with Kyle. Uh, Cause he's the big kahuna in 
in Gidget. Like, the, you know, that, that's <laughs> that's how far back this dude goes. And he wasn't a young mm-hmm. man then either. He says he's like 60-something in this movie, and he's actually 80, which is amazing. What? Yeah, he said he's 68, and I'm sitting there going like, is this guy in like his early 60s or or, or what's happening? Yeah, extremely comic accurate. Aunt May and Uncle Ben here, uh, <laughs> um, you know, in, in the look and vibe and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I didn't, I, I remember finding out after this actor passed away about his sort of film legacy and everything. And yeah, he'd been around forever. Yeah. And the, the actress, Rosemary Harris, plays May Parker. We talked about her on Hoffman briefly before The Devil Knows You're Dead. She's in that. I, I'm sure she has a storied career as well, but they're both great in this film, I think. And that was the big legend. And we get touches of it, sort of, in all the franchises. But growing up, you all know, shit got real when Uncle Ben died. You know? And we got... we Yeah. <laughs> we saw it here with great power, it becomes great responsibility, all that jazz. The other big name I'll mention, because he became an even bigger name after this, not just because of this, but he won an Academy Award, of course, is J.K. Simmons as the perfect perfect J. Jonah Jameson. Like, so nice they brought him back into the MCU. They won't let anyone else play this character. Because <laughs> he's so good, and even at the time, and I think he's a Sam Raimi casting because he was in For Love of the Game, believe it or not. He was like the uh, Kevin Costner's manager in that. And I'm so, oh. I'm so glad because perfect. Just fucking yeah. perfect. I wonder if he was in The Quick and the Dead, too. Yeah, again, with the comic accuracy, it's also like I would believe that this dude would still exist in the early 2000s before newspaper died, right? Before the internet, before that whole, like, scandal. Remember remember that, uh, Brian, when, like, no one reads newspapers anymore <laughs> became a thing? Like, this is right before that. We would still get, like, JJJ or, or Perry White and things, and it would make sense. And I was like, yeah, this guy feels like like a throwback but also like a real guy would like someone who's so involved in journalism that they don't really have a sense of style or like they haven't they've eaten the same thing for 30 years because they like you know that's their regiment and everything so i've always loved this character and yeah the, the energy in which he's portrayed is just so perfect. So it's really crazy how Sam Raimi's getting a great blend of like this like comic accuracy stuff, but also like making it feel like it could exist like in the real world, you know? And like, I feel like that is the trick. That's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. That's what he does best. It's like, it hits the good camp notes and none of the, this seems fake and silly, right? Like J. J. Jonah Jameson feels like, and I love how they brought him into the MCU these days, right? Like as kind of a Fox News-ish talking head. Yeah. Because yeah. that feels like the natural evolution of who this person would be. Yeah, but you're right. Raimi, this is what he's doing best. He clearly loves the subject matter. He loves the comics. But he's also making it relatable for that TRL generation too. <laughs> the one note that I'm feeling is like he's somehow able to get everybody to go just big enough right like you don't want to be sort of like playing for the cheap seats but you also can't play spider-man too down okay like even even in the soft moments 
there needs to be a bit of sort of like schmaltz or something like when Uncle Ben is telling him about the great power, great responsibility thing. Like it's a little soapy, you know what I'm saying? For but sure. it, but it's but it's got to be that it's got to like just get there and then pull itself back, which is exactly what the, that scene does when it becomes super relevant and modern. And Peter kind of like has his tip, like his little fit and like explodes at his uncle because, you know, he's late for his wrestling match and stuff. So like it's just. Yeah, I feel like Sam Raimi is doing a great job of, like, dealing with notes and, like, pressure and, like, things out of his control and dealing with things that he can control and and directing that kind of stuff really well. Because, you're like, how much control do you think he really had with the suit, you know? And not just the goblin suit, but, like, Spider-Man suit, okay? Because a big criticism was, like, how the fuck did Tobey Maguire's character... Like, how did Peter Parker make that fucking suit, <laughs> you know? Like, it looks like a thousands of dollars suit or whatever. But, like, Sam Raimi does a great job of being, like, so what? You know? Like, we're not even gonna, like, address it, really. We're, why even think about that, like we're just going to move on from that and somehow you forget about it or at least i did you know every time he showed up i wasn't going like yeah where do you get the material for like, the, <laughs> the, the the raised webbing and like where did he find the face mask plate and like no i don't really give a shit about that because at that point like he's already swinging through the city and doing other fantastical stuff that like you know i care more about so yeah no again couldn't agree more Let's get into some uh, scenes, because there's other people in the cast, but I think they'll, they'll be brought up when we go uh, through some of these key moments. I do want to talk about this opening, because when I was watching this movie, I'm like, I probably remember every line to this film. Who am I? You sure you want to know? Like, that that opening. Oh, yeah, the uh, voiceover. The voiceover. Yeah. And we're learning about this Spider-Man character. We're seeing, like, his true queen's residence. But that f- the first, I think, scene that I always remember is the field trip, right? Where we're learning about the spiders. And is it hitting, like, is it hitting us over the head with a hammer of, like, what this movie is going to be about? Sure. I don't care at this point because I'm, I'm just a kid watching this movie. And I'm so excited. They're like, oh, my God, that's a spider that's going to bite him, you know? Yeah, I was surprised rewatching it how sort of economic it is with its time. Like, Timing. It, it is it is right off the bat, like, we're not going to go to class and, like, sit around and he's not going to do a science experiment and learn about, like, spiders or anything. Like, there's not going to be any foreshadowing, really, in this movie. Like, we're just going to go, like, right to the, uh, the, like, getting bit scene. Like, it's almost the first scene. We get that one Forrest Gump moment on the bus where no one wants him to sit next to him. And that, like, always sells home, like, what a loser he is. But, yeah, and then the field trip, which, you know, talk about high school, Brian. Fucking field trips, man. How great were those days? Best days of school. So fun. So fun. And you can tell there's kids here who, like the Harrys of the world, who don't really care. And there's kids like Peter who's very interested. And they're at, like, that lab, and they see all those spiders. And she's going over... Like, for a fan, you know Spider-Man's powers. But if you're, again, just a TRL kid who, who knows a little bit about Spider-Man, the lady going over what each spider does, like, she's like, almost a spider sense with this one. Or, like, this one can run fast. This one can yeah. climb. And these are the super spiders. One's missing. Oh, well. You know what I mean? It's building to this thing like, oh, the spider's going to bite him. The spider's going to bite him. 32,000 known species of spider in the world. They're in the order Arane, which is divided wow. into that's amazing. This is the most advanced electron microscope on the eastern seaboard. It's unreal. 
Arachnids from all three groups possess varying strengths which help them in their constant search for food. For example, the Delena spider, family Sporacidae, has the ability to jump to catch its prey. For the school paper? Mm-hmm. Next, we have the netweb spider, family Philistatidae, genus Cucucania. Spins an intricate funnel-shaped web whose strands have a tensile strength proportionately equal to the type of high-tension wire used in the bridge building. Leave him alone. Or what? Or his father will fire your father. <laughs> What's daddy gonna do? Sue me? What is going on? The next person who talks will fail this course. I kid you not. This grass spider hunts using a set of reflexes with nerve conduction velocity so fast that some researchers believe it almost borders on precognition and Those early awareness jerks. of danger. A spider sense. Hey, look at that spider. Spider Some spiders change colors to blend into their environment. It's a defense mechanism. Peter, what makes you think I would want to know that? Who wouldn't? Over five painstaking years, Columbia's genetic research facility Get to talk to her now? The genetic oh. No, come on. You talk to her. Armed with these DNA blueprints, right. we have now begun what was once thought impossible. Disgusting. Just imagine. Yeah, hateful little things. I love them. Yeah, me too. You know, spiders can change their color to blend into their environment. Really? Yeah, it's a defense mechanism. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting trick. Like, Sam Raimi's really good at this, like, sleight of hand directing that I feel that Spielberg, maybe, like, he's very good at it, too, but I feel like lost a step somewhere in doing it. But, like, Sam Raimi will have, like, two things happening in this scene, and one is, like, a complete distraction of what's really going on. So, like, during the field trip, you have the lady explaining all the exposition about, like, all the spider powers and stuff in the background. But the real thing is Peter trying to take a picture of Mary Jane exactly. and, and Harry picking up Mary Jane and, like, hitting on her and then, like, Flash and all the bully boys and all that kind of stuff. And, like, that's the real, like, crux of the scene. And that's scene. exactly and, like, what I was going to say, Mike. Because while all that's going on in the background, it's really just a teenage story in the foreground. Do you know that this is the largest electron microscope on the eastern seaboard? Oh. You were talking throughout that woman's entire presentation. Let's go talk about how we listen. Now, I don't know what it's like at those fancy private schools in Osborne. Hey, uh, can I take your picture? I, I need one with a student in it. Sure, yeah. Great. Where do you want me? Um, over here? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Don't make me look ugly. <laughs> that's impossible. <gasps> oh, perfect. 
you see Mary Jane and just the way Peter looks at her and wanting to take that picture. And yeah, it's a little creepy, but he's a high school kid with a camera, you know, some of those pictures of her. I'll never forget like Mary Jane pointing at something, you know, like that's like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, like <good. laughs> that's like an image in my head that I'll never forget. You're absolutely right. And I love how economical it is and how this first half of the movie is truly teenage Spider-Man getting bit is such an iconic moment, but that like the next five minutes of how he's feeling and going home and passing out and waking up jacked and the glasses not working, I think is one of the most iconic moments in not just a superhero movie, but like any movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, awesome in the comics too i mean and i mean you know it's also there's going to be some kind of uh connection to puberty right like your body changes when you're a teenager and he's going to mention that right to uncle ben or something like i'm going through some changes (laughs) or or he mentions that to maybe mary jane in the backyard and in one scene and everything so like yeah i really just love how like even his kind of transformation into you know Spider-Man and his body changing and like all this weird stuff happening is like uh, it's like it's going through puberty too. It's like it just makes it even more relatable. Like the way you get your powers, you know, he wasn't born with them or any of this kind of stuff. Like it happened when he was a teenager. I think that was a big thing for the X-Men too. Like mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, it's like let's take the Fantastic Four but make him a team of Spider-Mans, so we have like a superpowered teenage team, you know fighting crime and like popping pimples and all that kind of thing yeah and speaking of like those teenage moments and just we get a typical teenage cafeteria scene (laughs) yes flash thompson played by your guy and not just my guy i mean you know like every person that is like has any kind of like you know, sexual nature to them has to be attracted to this guy, right? I mean, not then, but I mean now at least, right? Joe, I'm not talking about this scene. I'm talking about Alcide in in True Blood. <laughs> Joe Maginello, he's in he's in one of the Magic Mike films, right? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Looking for the glass slipper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I will probably nominate him for an award later. The way he looks as a high schooler, but we'll get there. <laughs> it's funny, dude. I had a friend. Named Mike, coincidentally, who in high school looked exactly like this, bro. Like, jacked, big, football-playing dude. Nice kid, though. Like, not a Flash Thompson attitude or anything, but, like, definitely, like, I don't know about that. (laughs) And that's why it's okay, because they need to depict the bullies as, like, ten times Peter's strength. So, in this scene, he's famously learning his web thing, which is, again, akin to the puberty. Well, let's get it on the record, Mike. How do you feel about this film, that he doesn't have web fluid, which usually is what he does, that he has, like, web secretion glands and he has unlimited web. Yeah, I think it's fine. You know, I think it's an interesting change. Listen, it, it I don't know, it kind of does two things and I'm not sure which is better. Like, one, it kind of overpowers him because part of the deal is, like, he would run out of web fluid and it would be an issue and he would just not be able to swing and get away or web up somebody. And it was like, Oh shit, like, uh, I don't have that. But then on the other hand, it's like, Oh, you never run out of that. So from a storytelling perspective, it's one less thing to care about. It's one less thing that you need to address. And from what I understand that might've been left over from the James Cameron script. If I'm also not mistaken, the scene where he's web shooting in his bedroom and he's learning the ropes of all that kind of stuff i think they originally shot that with web shooters and they digitally removed them when they decided oh no like let's go with the organic web slinging kind of stuff but i think it's an interesting evolution again you could 
that's what I mean about how malleable a character is. Like you could do something. I feel like that as long as you give him web shooters of some kind. Yeah. I really kind of don't care. It'll be interesting if he shows up in the new Spider-Man and the other two guys are like, where's your web shooters? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've got this fucking gland on my, what, you guys don't have this? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be hilarious. There are rumors that Tobey Maguire is going to be there. I don't know. I don't want to make too many promises to myself because I don't want to be let down. I, I believe it when I see it. Exactly. That's, when it comes to films these days, I be, I'll believe it when it, you could make as many YouTube videos speculating as much as you want, but until I see it with my own eyes. I never got the anger over this, because there were a lot of people angry, because like if he's getting all these other powers, it's not that crazy that he would get that one, you know what I mean? That one's too far? Yeah. <laughs> it makes less sense to me that this Peter Parker could synthesize like an unknown material all by himself like it, it makes a little more sense with the tom holland because he's like he's a super that genius uni- you know yeah that universe it's more tech savvy he's more of like a young right like tony stark was a super genius kid like yeah this kid's on his way to mit like it makes more sense in that direction in in the mcu toby's peter isn't dumb by any means he's like one of the smarter kids in the class of course but he's also he feels like average person smart like could could he go to columbia and get a good job Yes, but it doesn't seem like he'd invent like a new thing yeah. to synthesize something. At least not yet, you know. Yeah, yeah, and he's got the photography skills in this one too. So it's I think it's like they're trying to balance that more. They're trying to say more about like we need him to interact with the newspaper and the and the photographs and all that. That's more of what we're going for with this movie than the science stuff. Like we have to set up that he's a nerd and that he's smart and everything like that, but we don't have to go far, too far because this isn't a universe with that kind of technology like there, like you said there isn't an iron man like you look at what oscorp is doing and you see like that fucking iron man exoskeleton that the green goblin blows yeah, yeah. up in the test like what the hell is that piece of shit you know like that's <laughs> the world we're living in here <laughs> you're so right you're so right but yeah so this cafeteria scene he basically yanks the tray hits flash they have a fight by the way flash is dating MJ in this version. Did you hear that trick with him catching all the food was for real? That that took like almost 20 takes, but they got that for real? Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy because it's such an iconic moment. But then it leads to one of my favorite scenes too, is when he's like, holy shit, I have powers. When he stays out, you know, Uncle Ben, he disappoints him because he doesn't... I love when Uncle Ben's like, hey, Michelangelo, don't forget, you gotta help paint the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) But when when he stays out, like, experimenting with his powers, because that's what any kid would do if they first got powers, right? They're like, let me see if I can jump over this roof. Let me see how the web thing works. When he's like yelling Shazam and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like this is two things. Like, it's, it's oh man, like, it's really well directed be- and really well acted. Like, you, you could just read it in Tobey Maguire's, like, expressions. Like, when he looks at his hand and they zoom in on it and then it looks back at him and he's like, oh. And he's, like, kind of looking up and he sees the spider web and he's, like, putting two and two together and he's, like, making all these connections and he finally, like, starts climbing the wall and then he's like, oh, shit. And he just, like, focuses they're running across, like, all the rooftops. Like, it's just really cool. I was like, thank God they didn't bring that fucking narration back halfway through the movie to be like, was this really happening? <laughs> if I put my hand on this wall, will it stick? Should I try? You know? Like, thank fucking God that that, like, the narration doesn't come back until, like, the very end of the movie. Yeah, I'm in agreement with that. 
I'm just going to do some quick hitter scenes that I just really were iconic. Yeah, lots of great set pieces in this. Lots, you can do like a, lots of yeah. great set pieces. And you know, the next one I've wanted to talk about pretty much my whole life. When, well, Peter has his like jankity costume and he sees an ad in the paper. <laughs> oh, you could make $5,000 by joining this wrestling a tournament, essentially? Last three minutes for $3,000 with Bonesaw. Bonesaw, oh yeah. Played by... Wonderful cameo, Macho Man Randy Savage. What's your name, kid? The Human Spider. The Human Spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of $3,000 will be paid to the terrifying, the deadly, the amazing Spider-Man! My name's the Human Spider. I don't care. Get out there. No, he got my name wrong. Get you out tell there, him. you moron. <laughs> Bonesaw's gonna eat you up and spit you out, little man. I hope you brought your mommy with We're you. We're gonna break you. Gonna someone's gonna cry. I'm gonna rip the There was so many like behind the scenes facts in the IMDb that I didn't want to like include all of them. The one thing that kept coming into my mind, Brian, is like I'm gonna go watch the WrestleMania three Ricky Steamboat match with Macho Man after this movie. Yeah, right. Like, and I remember in the theater being like, "Is that Macho Man?" Because believe it or not, mm-hmm. yeah, like the voice is iconic, and you know it's him from the voice. But that is not Macho Man's traditional look. No, he was so much bigger than he used to be, and he had the big beard and stuff. And like, I had sort of not been paying attention that closely to wrestling. I was after this movie. I got way. I think, I think like I took a break before this movie, and then after this movie, I got back into it for a while. Yeah, because. Sam Raimi is also doing such a great job of filming him as, like, a monster. Macho Man was never a monster kind of wrestler, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, you're right. And he's definitely casting people to make him even look bigger. Because, like, Macho Man next to Andre the Giant, or or people like that, even Hulk Hogan, doesn't look that big. But Macho Man, in real life, compared to real people, is a pretty big guy. So, I, I think Sam Raimi shoots this wrestling scene so well yeah i'd love to see him do a wrestling movie like just like a fun <laughs> wrestling because he also have bruce campbell here oh yeah uh, that's that's the guy who, who was from his evil dead movies played ash and like he's really great as an announcer you know like i'd love to see more of that kind of stuff i think that's octavia spencer i was is just that... gonna say octavia Her spencer 
<laughs> is like the person with like one of the best line readings of the entire movie. <laughs> She's great. She was just overlooked for years. Just like so New York, right? I was just like, oh, what an amazing. I remember when the theater going like, oh, that's so cool. Like, who's this lady? She's like straight out of Central Casting. The one thing I'll say about Bonesaw uh, slash Macho Man that I don't think a lot of people know: while wrestling with stuntmen, uh, Randy Savage suffered a neck injury. That pretty much ended his active in-ring career after this. Oh no, on the set of this movie? On the set of this movie, yeah. He could, like, you know, tussle a bit, but he was never the same after this. I don't think he regretted it. Like, Mm. I've seen interviews with him, and he Mm -hmm. was actually really proud to make this, like, mainstream crossover. Again, from what I've read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think after this is when he really took off as, like, the Slim Jim guy, too, or... I don't know, maybe it was before, but like that's what really like that's who he was sort of in popular culture around this time, I feel, was like snapping into snow. Oh yeah. I mean he was doing that since the eighties, but still like Oh, okay. I wasn't aware. He was continuing to do it after this as well. But he's so good. He has such natural charisma. And when Peter like winning that fight, it's also like believable too, because he's got these powers and it's like, holy shit. And then even the promoter stiffing him is great, and that's you know, one thing leads to another. Dude, all of this, too, is, like, straight out of a comic book from 1960s. You know, like, it's just amazing how timeless it all is in a weird way. Like, I totally buy that this weird wrestling promotion thing is just happening in the middle of the day in New York City, you know, <laughs> like, out of nowhere. Like, just this pop-up wrestling <laughs> tournament kind of situation. Like, maybe they're filming for a show. Maybe not. It's probably, like, local uh, television, if anything. And also, just I just love that Spider-Man has wrestling origins and like this is in the comics too like in the comics this is how he wants to go make some money he sees the ad and he goes and does like the whole wrestling thing and like you know the promoter stiffs him he lets the bad guy get away and it's the bad guy that ends up shooting his uncle you know the guy he let get away is responsible for murdering his uncle which is shakespearean tragic you know so (laughs) good though so good and just back to the wrestling quickly it makes so much sense because, like, obviously we know wrestling is scripted. But in the comic book world, it feels like wrestling would be real, you know, because those are larger-than-life characters as well. Yeah, yeah. And and the real-world wrestlers feel like, at least the reasons I watch them is because they felt like superheroes, you know? Like these guys who got dressed up into costumes and beat the shit out of each other. It was, you know, they may as well have been Spider-Man and the Green Goblin to me as little kids. Or, or at least, like, you know, maybe... Superman and like Metallo I don't know one of the Superman villains but you get my point you know like wrestling kind of has its roots in comics too to a degree like all the sideshow stuff it just feels interconnected and if you think about too like the tradition of wrestling like in Mexico like luchadors like they would make luchador movies that sort of predate our comic book movies but are essentially the same thing and those guys in real life would not take off their masks yeah dude it's like funny because i remember like nacho libre is one of my favorite comedies you know but like to then find out about the tradition of luchador films and like how there's films about like luchador crime fighters absolutely like like it's terrific but then you're right the uncle ben dying and it's a result of his selfishness is so like one, that's something a teenager would do, right? Like, not stop that yeah. thing because, well, well, you screwed me over, so fuck you, you know, essentially. And that his uncle dies from it, his, like, beloved, nice dude uncle. It's just like, like you said, it's Shakespearean, it's poetic. And it's like, dude, everything you do from now on, 
you gotta be a good guy because this guy died in vain unless yeah and it keeps coming too with that kind of like tragic twists and things like um you know in the comics not just like with his girlfriend dying in the comics and stuff but like the idea that his arch nemesis is his best friend's dad like what like how do you come up with that like that you know and again like today that might not feel so special but like Batman has no connection with the Joker whatsoever. You know what I'm mean? There's no personal thing going on there as far Mike, as like... what are you talking about? You didn't watch Gotham? Isn't that the name of the show? Like where where everyone was connected? Oh, or, or the new Joker movie where Arthur Fleck like meets young Bruce Wayne. I mean, I'm not talking about like that <laughs> kind kidding, of stuff. I'm but I, I know you are. But I, I'm just saying like as far as like, you know, your arch nemesis goes and everything like that. Like there's just something more kind of poetic if there's more of like this personal connection. It's like, I know you in real life or I know you during the day and I fight you at night. You know, like what is our relationship? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's great. It's, it's so great. And how the rest of this movie plays out. Well, I love, love the montage, right? Like there's like such, it's so comic booky, but it's so good because we're just seeing him start to fight crime. And I think, Almost every Spider-Man movie we'll get after this will get a good crime-fighting montage of one sort or another. Yeah, yeah. And it's just also, like, a good kind of New York film New for York, the time, New York, New York. So, like, like right? G- G- Jim Norton, like, like he's so bad. <laughs> we were just... He stinks, and I hate him. <laughs> Over on my show last month, we were talking about Muppets Take Manhattan in the 80s New York. And this is definitely, like, you know, Giuliani era. Yeah. Like, everything is, like you know, Disney, Disney-fied and everything like that. But you still do get, you know, Sam Raimi is like, no, 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 we still need construction workers and things like that and all those kinds of dudes. And I even think they did some reshoots after 9-11 to include a little more sort of like local color and personality. Yeah, because there's also that like shot of like him with the American flag, you know, like that's definitely post 9-11 edit. Yeah, yeah. But it's cool because he also, you get like the punks, you get like the singing cowboy, you just, you get, you know, it just feels like, the vibe of New York then. Like, I, I was going into New York a lot during that time because I had just sort of started with the DJ stuff and everything, and, like, yeah, felt like that movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This is really a movie of two halves, right? Because you see him graduate high school here, and... Yeah, that was a surprise, that they took him out of high school in the middle of the first movie. Everyone was sort of like, whoa, really? That's, uh, okay. I think, right. I think Raimi's probably, like... I don't know if they're going to let me do more. And I kind of want to depict this Daily Bugle era of Spider-Man. True. Which, once we get to the Daily Bugle stuff and him just like kind of trying to make it in the city, which again, not a lot of things. We don't talk about that a lot here in High School Lumber Party, but that feels straight out of the comic book. Like once we see J. Jonah Jameson, I forgot the other guy's name who's also like in the comics a lot. Like the one who's kind of J. Jonah Jameson's foil at the Bugle. Right, yeah, I think that's that might be like the editor in chief. Like, yeah, I don't know. Whoever, yeah, it is. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, but and seeing it as the Flatiron Building and stuff. Peter as a photographer, Mary Jane trying to make it as an actor in the city, and she's ends up dating Harry, which is another twist. Harry is not very likable in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that was kind of the deal, I guess, with Harry in general is that he was this privileged rich kid before. That was kind of like everywhere, you know, and spoiled rotten and yeah. And I think him and Peter, Harry doesn't have a mother and his dad is very sort of like unattentive, right? And Peter doesn't have his parents either. So 
they're also like Harry's very sort of gorgeous and and does bad in school, but Peter's kind of dorky and does good in school. There's sort of like this weird like. There's this Nick Cage movie, Birdie, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Cage plays, like, this really cool kid in the neighborhood, and Matthew Modine plays this, like, really weird kid, Birdie, and they end up becoming best friends as if, like, these opposites attracted each other, you know? And then you get, like, the cool kid and the nerd end up spending all their time together, you know, because they can't relate to anybody else. So I kind of got that vibe going from Harry, and I'm going to say, like, I feel bad for him or anything like that, but, like... I do definitely get a very kind of like teenage grump grumpy teenaging like faux depression off of him or something you know like like oh woe is me in my perfect life kind of thing yeah he like it's too early to be a hipster right but he is like whatever that pre-hipster era not i'm not saying like he dresses like it but this is not like bratty harry it is poor little rich kid harry but he's also james franco plays it in a way where he doesn't really have a lot of airs about him. He tr- in the second one he kind of does more, but in this one, yeah. in this one he doesn't really. He just is that way. <laughs> you know, he can't help himself. Yeah. And they're both outcasts at that school because he's a private school kid in a public school. Peter just an outcast of who he is. So that's why they have something in common. But I think as this the Raimi series goes along, they start to have a lot less in common because they really you know, at their essence, don't really have a lot in common. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was actually pretty surprised at, like, the chemistry they have in the few sort of sequences they share together and, you know, when they're in the apartment and that stuff and they're sort of, like, trying to talk to each other. Like, I was just kind of, like, I don't know if I want to keep saying impressed or whatever, but, like, Franco does a really good job of, like, understating everything in a way where it's, like, Harry's in this movie going through his own kind of thing, but, like, it's not really in the forefront again you know what i'm saying but like if you wanted to dig there there's a lot of stuff like you can just see it behind his sort of character like there's a lot going on we're just not going to get into it but like things are weighing on him in a certain way you know and i think this again comes to Raimi. like there's a lot of there's a lot of just good like face acting in this movie like willem dafoe has an amazing scene where he's talking to himself in the mirror and he's switching back between those two faces yeah. the goblin face you know and what, the Mike? norman face just to take a little quick segue i think when sam raimi shoots willem dafoe this is where the horror side comes out like when he first becomes <laughs> green goblin and that scene with the back and forth talking in the mirror and just uh there's that thanksgiving scene which is great in, in peter and harry's apartment in the city where um they've already had a battle and they're trying to figure out if you know who's who especially goblin slash defoe is trying to figure out like he kind of has an inkling peter might be spider-man there's that great scene where peter's on the ceiling and the blood spills right yeah, yeah. but the moment at the table when he realizes that holy shit peter is spider-man is something I think they do really well. Michael Keaton realizes that Tom Holland is Spider-Man in the new oh, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's very similar, but the way it's shot here is so horror-like that I love it. Like, this is Raimi yeah. pulling the horror chops out. That was my point. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and this is all, like, Evil Dead camera work, too. Like, this is all sort of tricks from his trade that he's developed in his that he now is like sort of pulling out of his pockets and like he you know out of his arsenal and stuff is like all these camera movements and all the whips and and all like you know like that scene in the bedroom like it's resting on Willem Dafoe and then it looks up to the ceiling and Spider-Man's gone and then it looks down back to Willem Dafoe and he's got it's he's 
clearly transformed into the goblin at that point and stuff. And so like, there's a lot of just great camera direction too, without, again, without sort of like being super obvious about it, like, because it's the language of the movie, like the way the camera swoops through the canyons of New York city, as if it was Spider-Man, like you have to, like, if it wasn't doing that, this film can't be static. You know, you can't just shoot this as a static film. When it's not Spider-Man swinging, the camera has to keep mm, moving or else those other moments aren't going to, you know, feel right. Like it's going to be jerky or something. And so like, I'm just always impressed. Like, yeah, watching Evil Dead and stuff, the camera is all over the place and he's doing all kinds of amazing tricks with it and stuff. And he's bringing it all into here and it's just like crossing over really well too. But yeah, that he gets scary. I'd say the end scene too at the graveyard, like that's, that looks amazing. I mean, the the Thanksgiving fire apartment building thing, like everything just looks like really great. Yeah, you're so right. And you mentioned something else, Mike, before, just the economy of this movie. Just think about how many Spidey stories we get in this two-hour film. This isn't a two-hour-and-a-half film or two hours and 45 right. minutes that some superhero movies are. We get so much of what the Spider-Man fans want in two beautiful economical hours and that's with a huge ass credits so it's even <laughs> it's even less um because if you think right. if you think about it look at mj's arc she's with Fla- flash yeah she has the whole thing with her dad who's an asshole she dates harry and then she has the romance with spider-man which turns into like a semi-romance with peter that's like four or five people that she's dating in this movie. And I don't mean to call her out like that, but I'm saying like, it doesn't feel rushed. It's just like, we're just living. It's phonetic. The movie's economic while it's yeah. phonetic. And the way you're talking about it, like a light bulb went off in me, in me when you said that, because you're so right. He's our web slinging hero through those canyons. So it's almost like we're doing a lot, but that's okay because that is the pace of the movie quite literally. And that is the pace of the way the script is. So again, I, I'm all in at this point. We, we do need to bring up a couple more scenes, and one of them being the MTV Best Kiss Award-winning scene, that oh, man. upside-down Spider-Man kiss scene in the rain. Who wasn't talking about that scene, at least my age, you know? You have a knack for getting in trouble. <laughs> you have a knack for saving my life. I think I have a superhero stalker. I was in the neighborhood. You are amazing. Some people don't think so. But you are. Nice to have a fan. Do I get to say thank you this time? Wait. Iconic. Just visually from like a graphic standpoint, you know, like uh, something that seems that it could only be done in this story. And, you know, like that kind of special thing about it, right? In the way that Superman and Lois flew together hand in hand to Can You Read My Mind or whatever that shit was. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what Batman and Vicky Vale did together. I guess they escaped the uh, Joker and drove through a forest and that was romantic for him and everything. But like, yeah, this is just so, so great because it's like a thing you can only really do with Spider-Man, you know? And it's just visually like so graphically like pleasing with this upside down kiss thing and everything and the way the faces mesh and match and yeah it's just really cool so cool so cool and the other big scene i want to talk about before we get to our awards is 
because we've we've really touched on a lot of the scenes. You mentioned the graveyard ending. You yeah, yeah, and we're here for for high school Peter Parker yeah. mainly, first and foremost. It is kind of funny though. Like I was, I can't believe this movie's only two hours, and just like how packed and like not like it feels like some movies where there's too much going on, like too much exposition or too much this or too much, you know, like it just keeps moving and stuff keeps happening and Spider-Man keeps like fighting crime, (laughs) you know, like it really does feel like that Richard Donner Superman sensibilities meshed with just like modern technologies and things like that. Like that's more of the vibe that I'm getting off of it, this go around, you know, and then, totally loving it and i I can't believe the new one is going to be like three hours so it's crazy strap in for that (laughs) third film three hours we're going to be talking a lot that's for sure we're going to talk a lot of spider-man on this spider month but (laughs) the one scene i did want to talk about before we got out of here is that queensborough bridge scene i think it's such a great set piece that's a sam raimi being smart right I think in the James Cameron one that we we already mentioned, even though it's a sex scene, it's on the Brooklyn Bridge. I think a lot of directors would have picked the Brooklyn Bridge because it's the more iconic bridge. But Spider-Man's from Queens. To have him fight on that 59th Street Queensboro Bridge, it's amazing to me. And I I know like people who would come visit the city that I knew, like, oh my God, that's the bridge that Spider-Man fought at. And (laughs) it's really cool. And uh, so I say this because... I was so pissed off when Christopher Nolan took it in one of the Batman movies, and like that's like the bridge, like we're locked down Gotham, you know? Oh right, yeah. And I'm like, the, come on, man! One. Like he just has no respect for other superhero movies, and I like Nolan, but he's no respect for that in a sense. It's like this was already an iconic scene in like a superhero movie that came out five years ago. But he's like, no, mine's better. But regardless, I feel like that is the energy or the kind of kind. Uh, what do I say? Like the influence, maybe of. Sam Raimi, whereas, like, I don't feel like James Cameron might have given a shit that Spider-Man's from Queens, necessarily. But Sam Raimi is like, no. He has to be from Queens because it's so much a part of his identity and, like, it's so much a part of the city, city's identity. We know he where he's from, you know, Captain America. Like, we all found out he's from Brooklyn recently from the MCU. But everyone, you know, I feel like Queens was a dead giveaway for Spider-Man. Like, yeah, has to be. And... The res- like you say, like it's so great the respect he has for landmarks and stuff like that, and and working the bridge into the sequence too in an exciting way, like using the tram. Yeah, right? the Roosevelt like the- Island tram. Yeah, like that's not on every bridge in the city. Like that is very sort of specific to that as well. And you're right, like Brooklyn Bridge is kind of overdone, and we can't be on the George Washington Bridge because we're on the other side of the city and yeah. all that kind of thing. And, you know, I thought it was terrific. It's such a great ending. And I don't know, was it last year? I guess. Or maybe, I don't remember when we talked Spider-Man 3 on, on your show. Oh, that was like two, was years, two years ago. Two, two, it was too long ago. <laughs> but that final set piece and that movie just felt so tired that it felt like everyone was done by that point, which is really, really disappointing. This year, like, oh, man. Like, it felt like it built to something. Uh, and he's got to choose, like, do I save the girl I love? Classic, right? Classic. Shakespearean. Do I save the girl I love? Or do I save all these innocent people? Am I Peter Parker? Am I, or am I Spider-Man? I know Batman has to make these choices with the Joker, and those movies are great. <laughs> Batman did have to make this choice in Batman Forever with Val Kilmer. We <laughs> had to decide between Dr. Chase and Robin, I think. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> but it's, it's such a classic superhero 
choice thing, and I just think they nail it here. Yeah, because it's like, who are you going to be? This or that? And he's like, I'm both, motherfucker. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. I've decided, like, I've chose that I'm going to be Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And so he saves everybody. Dude, I love it. I love it. And, oh, man, the Goblin looks really badass on the bridge at night, though, like, holding that shit up. And, and I love the Goblin voice where he's like, hello, Spider-Man. Because, because <laughs> of Willem Dafoe's voice. He doesn't, have, like, they don't have to modulate it that much. Like, they do, but yeah. if it was, think about if it was one of the other guys I mentioned there. Like, I don't think they could pull that off, like, realistically, you know? Yeah, no, I don't think so, you know? No. And we do get a uh, the Goblin's death scene in this, which will propel the rest of the series and Harry's feelings towards P- Spider-Man slash Peter. Yeah, yeah. Great, great fight, right? Great Such an fight. awesome fight. And, like, that's a very iconic... I almost, like, passed out at one point because I was so happy that they reenact one of, like, the most classic covers of early Spider-Man. Oh, where do they? The Goblin has... The Goblin has him sort of, like, roped up on his string and he's pulling him from the glider and... They reenacted that in this movie towards the end where he like ropes them up and yanks them and they go flying like over the water and stuff. I was like, oh my God, like that's so cool. Like they're incorporating like iconic imagery, but it's also not superfluous. You know what I'm saying? Like it's propelling the story. It's using this iconic shot as a shot to like get him from the bridge to the mainland. And like it was terrific. Terrific. And Spider-Man doesn't kill him. It's his own hubris that kills him. He tries to lure Spider-Man in. Spider-Man dodges the whatever his hovercraft thing. and Or where is this? It's a graveyard, right? Yeah, I think they end up in some kind of church at a graveyard or some kind of... It's like all got a lot of like that like religious imagery going on there. Yeah, so yeah, it's at the graveyard. By the way, I love Osborne's like house on top of that building or it's a real New York building. Yeah, yeah. That was actually in I think that was in the last Spider-Man movie. There was a shot of 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 uh, Tom Holland jumping off of oh, that. Oh wow, cool. And just the green paint, it, like the way his apartment is painted, it's so good. But yeah. the death scene yeah. there and I really like the death scene too because it's very much in line with all the other tragedy in the film, you know, where it's like I don't want to say it but like Spider-Man kind of I don't want to say he like did it to himself, right? But he did let that robber go where he easily could have just stopped him and it ended up in the death of his uncle. I don't want, you know, he is kind of responsible for that, right? And so here, like the Green Goblin is also very much responsible for his own death, like trying to murder his son's best friend and also this kid that he was potentially saw as like some kid he could mentor, right? Like they have this whole relationship when Norman Osborn is not insane from Goblin juice or whatever that like he really kind of admires peter parker and almost wishes his son was more like him and there's all like that going on in the movie which is really great and it really fuels like how much it hurts when you when they end up becoming enemies and even more so when like the green goblin ends up killing himself while trying to kill this kid that he like saw so much of himself in like there's just a lot to unpack that i wasn't aware of you know yeah and So this is the first time I thought this about this film. Like, when I saw it for the first time, I was like, oh, I can't wait for their sequel. I knew there could be a sequel. And Spider-Man 2 delivered, at least at the time. I haven't seen it in a while. Oh, dude, yeah, that train sequence, insane. But I realized here that theoretically, if they stopped, this, this survives as a standalone film as well. The bad guy dies. 
we know he's going to become a hero. The only thing that like isn't resolved is like he kind of leaves Mary Jane on red. And Harry sees him deliver the corpse of his father and thinks he's responsible. So there is that bit of a dangling thread. But I also feel like you could just cut that from the movie and Harry is just sort of like oblivious to what happened. Yeah, and he's got to live with that. And just, there's this idea, right, of like origin stories that don't necessarily lead to anything. And I think I really believe Sam Raimi was directing that way. You know, he's like, I, mm-hmm. I might, like I said, this might be my only chance to do this. This is an awesome project. I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to do it my way. And I think he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. You know, if this was the only one that we got for a couple, for whatever, like if this was it, like definitely like amazing. Like, you know, they put everything into this and it doesn't feel like overstuffed or anything. Like, I don't know. It just, it's a, it's still, I feel still holds up as a good template for like how to do it right you know it's got the great amount of of like bright kind of fun it's not dark like visually and stuff but like they're dark themes kind of going on with like the soap opera tragedy stuff but they play it all straight and it's yeah i don't know man like sam raimi just knew like exactly how to do it you know and it's not like it just good for the time like it still holds up i feel in my mind like this is mm-hmm. this is still good stuff i feel like like i said there was an era where people were shooting on the raimi trilogy for whatever reason yeah i think it, i think it suffered because of so much that came after you know like people looked at movies like speaking of nick cage like ghost rider or even like affleck and daredevil like all these kind of things were coming along during the lifespan of the raimi trilogy that definitely had to influence it one way or the other. And I think, yeah, people might have looked back on this, you know, five years from its release, they might have looked back on it and been like, oh, it's actually not as good as I thought because of how, like, soft it is in comparison to, like, all these other cooler comic book movies or whatever. But I think it it survived better than a lot of those guys, you know? Like, I think in retrospect now, it's like, no, like, this this is, like, the good stuff. Yeah. And, like, it still holds up. For sure. One more thing I'll ask you about, Mike, before our, our questions. All right. Well, All right. There's plenty more I'll ask you about, but one more pertinent to the something that happens in the film, or we'll say after the film concludes. Mm. What were your thoughts on the Chad Kroger of Nickelback song, Hero, as the theme here, <laughs> with, with co- co-star Josie Scott of the band Saliva? Yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> For a movie with such amazing Danny Elfman orchestration and just great, like, new music, you know, like, this is the dun, dun, dun. like, that's up there with, like, and, like, all the other shit. Great like, score. I like the theme. Yeah, great score. I don't know what the fuck this song is. Like, why didn't you just have the Ramon Spider-Man song from the get-go? Like, just, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. You know, that is definitely not what I was listening to. Uh, in 2001 so I, I think I just like left the theater going like with my mind my mind had been just been blown and you know into a million <laughs> pieces watching that movie so I don't think it really registered anything going on during the credits why is this one of your like go-to no, workout songs? no no <laughs> this is one thing that like where the rest of the movie aged well this this was a very popular genre at the time like the Nickelbacks and the Creeds you know what I mean that is not live I think right? very, that band live. yeah I think so it's not so much popular now but I'll never forget the song because like in the city that a hero will save us you know it was like 
I want Spider-Man <laughs> to come swinging around to come save me, Spider-Man. I had to mention yeah. it. I had to mention it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, at least they like, there goes my hero. Was that song out yet? Or, or we could be heroes. Like, that was definitely out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but nope, Chad Kroger of Nickelback got the bid. Side note quickly, also disappointing because I wish they picked like a more New York musician. Well, we do get that Macy Gray cameo. Oh yeah, Macy Gray cameo. That was cool. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> she wound up being like a really good actress too in a couple of things. We'll get plenty of time to talk more Spider-Man this month. So let's just get oh boy. let's just get to our awards. All right. Who was this movie made for? I'll give a serious answer. You know, I think they genuinely tried to make a legit four quadrant superhero movie for the whole family and succeeded. Like, I genuinely think they, they made it like this feels more like Donner Superman than Burton Batman. You know, it really feels like a great kind of update of that attitude of that kind of like happy go lucky like let's bring in some more optimism let's be let's try and be positive like no more dark nights and rainy days like let's just try and shoot this all you know in the afternoon and make it bright and you know what I'm you know where I'm getting at like I really feel like they did a great job of infusing the comic sensibility into the cinema format and I think this one is generally like uh, this one's good for the whole family now having said that they were definitely this would this would uncertainly be considered fan service today right like right out of the gate there there is a checklist on a wall in in the studio somewhere and they are literally going like <laughs> check 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 and there's there's poses and there's catchphrases and there's sayings that characters have to say and there's images that need to be seen and ways people need to look and like we have to match this but we could play with that and like it feels like there's a committee somewhere involved here but it's just remarkable like how well it came out all in the end like i'm still super impressed and this movie just like makes me feel really good yeah, I'm with you. I really think they made this movie for everyone and not in a way where they're like hodgepodging things together. Is there fan service? Sure. But we wait this long for a movie, there better be fan service. <laughs> Great call. And they took chances, like with the web shooters and the costumes and some of the details, you know, like they did some things. But yeah, they played it safe, which was smart. And it paid off. And the mark of a good blockbuster is this, right? Like, as a teenager, I could have gone with my girlfriend who knew nothing about Spider-Man and we could have had a good time. Or I could have gone with my nerdy friends and yeah, we would have had a good yeah. time. The football yeah. team could have gone and had a good time. Everyone in the school <laughs> would have had a good time watching this movie. Yeah, the whole family, you know? Like, your sister's looking at Franco while she's listening to Mary Jane. And, you know, the, the brother or the son is like following spider-man the dad loves j jonah jameson and uncle ben and the, the mom's just loving the night out that she doesn't have to cook i don't know <laughs> no there's plenty for everybody here certainly there's a lot going on all right most likely to succeed who won the movie who won the movie i mean peter parker wins the movie right i guess he, but he has to turn down the girl of his dreams so he doesn't he, have to but he has to because of responsibility so i mean that's yeah i guess I guess, but he has to be fucking Spider-Man, dude. Yeah, I like, guess. I'm he, sorry, I guess like won. Mary Jane is amazing. I might give up being Spider-Man to be a Mary Jane. It's a, t- I mean, that that is a tough call. But then again, like you know, I hate to say this, but like there's other fish out there. Like he's gonna end up meeting someone in a costume or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
I think Peter wins. You know, he gets to be Spider-Man. Wooderson Award. Is there a character here who you would have liked to have seen more of? It's tough here because we got a whole, uh, two other movies, so there's some characters that we do end up seeing more of. Is there anyone here who just like stood out for you? You're like, huh, I wish we got more of in this movie. So to be honest, I think there needed to be maybe an extra scene of Uncle Ben and Aunt May. Maybe like, you know how the movie starts with Peter running for the bus? I think if we saw them like waving goodbye, like, bye, Peter, like, don't be late again or something. Or like, don't forget to bring me eggs or whatever after school. You know, like, I think if we just got an extra thing of them, it would have, it might have sold it a little better because... Uh, we get more Aunt May down the line, but I feel like we just needed a little more Uncle Ben, maybe just an extra line or two turning to Aunt May going like, oh, that kid, like, as smart as he is, like, he'll, you know, he wears two left shoes. No matter how smart he is, he's got two left feet. You know, something like that. Like, if we got another sort of weird, quippy word of wisdom from Uncle Ben. That's great. Like, he's great in the movie. I'll take one more scene of him over some of the goblins. I love, look, I, you know, I love Willem Dafoe. I love the goblin thing. But sometimes, like, like when he's singing the Itsy Pitsy Spider song, like I didn't need that. Did how fun is the scene of Goblin and Spider-Man talking on the rooftop where he's trying to convince him to join forces? That is just like the weirdest, like it's surreal. It's like some kind of like weird experimental theater, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. <so> cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. But yeah, I'll take more Uncle Ben. Maybe that's what I'll put in the Long Duck Dong Award. This is for a, ca- ah. a, ca- a character whose omission would make the film better. It, it could be because it was inappropriate or it could be because you just didn't enjoy it right maybe we'll change mary jane's asian inspired dress at the unity day festival i don't know if that aged well maybe it'll be some of some of willem dafoe's corny lines but you know that's the character he's delirious i didn't notice the dress it's not it's not that big of a deal i'm just kind of kidding because of long duck dong but i think doesn't peter peter has kind of a bad line at one point in school or someone has a line where it's like no, doesn't he say to Bonesaw, like, who dressed you, your husband? Oh, like, oh, you're right. You're I was right. like, why would you say that, Peter Parker? Homophobic line, Peter. We'll do that. We'll delete that. <laughs> Penalty Ding. on the field. Yeah. <laughs> not, not cool, Peter. Not cool. Yeah. So we'll take that out. But there wasn't really a character I would eliminate, though. I, I think it was pretty economic that way. Yeah. I don't think there was a frivolous scene or whatever no no cameron fry award did anyone look too old to be a high schooler we kind of went over this like flash and his whole gang look like yeah. they're 25 at i'll least. give you flash but i was surprised how much i bought toby how much i bought him as a as still being like playing yeah. high schoolish. he's vulnerable he does vulnerable well so i think it worked yeah he does sort of like out of his league very well right like i'm out of my depth like i got a bit of like a you remember the movie was it lucas yeah, um, the the Corey movie, like speaking way back about maybe Corey Haim playing Peter Parker, but like <laughs> he he kind of is Lucas, you know, like that's kind of Peter Parker. That's a good call. I like that. And Lucas collects bugs. Oh, <laughs> all right, Mike. Let's grade the movie. We're going to do a lot of Spider-Man grading, so mm-hmm. maybe we'll keep that all in mind. I'm not sure. So of course, on High School Slumber Party, I hand you the Manila card, give you the red pen. Ask you to grade on an A plus to F scale, but we do have that old cheat sheet, right? We see what people have talked about online, how they've graded it out. Rotten Tomatoes, ninety percent by the critics. Nice. But sixty seven percent by the audience, which I found oh, weird. Shame on you folks. 
What? But then you go to the nerds at Letterboxd. Nerds. And maybe they're Peter Parkers themselves, but 3.6 out of 5, which is pretty good. Wow. So hard to say, really. So, Mike, what will you grade 2002's Spider-Man? Well, like Peter Parker himself, this movie gets an A. I'm definitely giving this, like, a super solid A. The only reason I don't give it that A+, plus is just because, like, Spider-Man 2 is definitely, like, A++. plus plus. Because, like, I know, like, in my mind, I'm like, how can they do this better? And then, like, I know I've seen Spider-Man 2, so I was like, oh my god, I can't believe, like, they're actually going to be able to sort of, like, push further. Which might have ended up with the collapse of inevitably, inevitably <laughs> right? They may have pushed themselves a little too hard with Part 2. But yeah, I mean, I definitely give this a solid A. I think it's terrific. I, I just think, you know, taste taste change. They come and go. This movie gets well in the sort of like whatever in the in the directory of superhero movies now. There's like a hundred of them, or there's over a hundred of them, right? So like, I think it still stands its ground amongst them all. You know, I really. What do you feel as far as like? most influential like superhero movies not comic book movies okay because there's stuff like american splendor and ghost no, world no, 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 which are like on another level but like superhero stuff right like you know i mentioned three so like there's the donner superman there's the burton batman there's the Raimi spider-man it's there's the favreau iron man and then there's got to be like someone else in there somewhere maybe the matrix and even though it doesn't yeah, come from that, that's, a specific that's... comic book no i'm not like you know we're talking about comic book superhero movies let's, let's yeah. put them together yeah so i don't know what that that fifth one might be it, as it's far this. as like it's this. setting the stage yeah. it's this no for, like it's undisputed to be like you could say spider-man yeah. 2 is better i know x2 is influential in its time it didn't really right it right. D- doesn't really age as well this is it this is in that top five as you're saying like it's amazing it's crazy. Uh, I, 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 I think it. It, I, you know. I think that's undisputed. This ushered in that new. Oh, issue. you know what? Pro- probably Dark Knight, the Dark Knight with Heath Ledger, right? Like that is another sort of. Yeah, not, a, not like a pivot point, but like a like a like a marker. Okay, like you have that, you have this, and the ones we've mentioned. I'd say, yeah, it is Mike. But on the other hand, when you want to have these pivot points, you want to see what did it influence. So you're not. We're not talking mm-hmm. about like the greatest moments, right? Because like. Tim Burton's Batman, great moment in comic book film history. But how did it really change the movies that came after it? Not much for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Dark Knight, Knight, so influential. But it's almost in a negative way because unfortunately it influenced Warner Brothers to make some bad decisions because they were trying to copy that. (laughs) Hey, it influenced uh, that James Bond movie with Bardem, right? It's like basically... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, <laughs> that is true. they just made uh, James Bond's Dark Knight. But it is influential. Uh, I'll put it up there. But like, ironically, the Burton one, and I like that one, and I like Michael Keaton a lot. Who's also coming back, for yeah. crying out loud. Jesus, yeah. But, As Batman, for crying out loud. <laughs> but like, if you think about influ- how influential it was, it's like I said, like movies didn't take off. For whatever reason, we didn't get a whole string of those style movies which is weird i don't even know why yeah it it took something kind of like like a studio to say like to start that connected universe thing for it to really resonate i feel like with the with the general public because you had all these movies that were not connected but you would see like oh it's a marvel character it's a dc character but like why isn't ghost rider running into you know 
Spider-Man for you know what I'm saying like why aren't they crossing over like no one ever had the rights to do that you know until the MCU sort of started and now I feel like it's a little easier to swallow when you realize they all kind of exist in the same world yeah. per se but you know? it, it was definitely X-Men and Spider-Man that jump started that first wave of before the interconnectivity it was studios trying to grab one of the properties and trying to make money yeah. off of it Yeah yeah it was like the proof right like <laughs> <laughs> Like between Blade and Spider Man and X Men, it was like, all right, we can. They they will translate. You, it's just very tricky. Did, wait, did I grade it? I, it's an no, a. you didn't. It's oh, an you a. did. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying it now. Like I, I just assumed everyone knew, but imagine I was like F. No, it's I'm with you. This is an A. Loved watching it this time. A for Arachnid. <laughs> yes, that's why. Okay, sleeping bag. What does your Spider-Man sleeping bag look like? This is probably a sleeping bag that a lot of people had at the time. <laughs> I might have, yeah. But this one looks real simple. It just looks like a big giant spider web. Like yeah. I want, I just want the web all over it, so it looks like I've been caught in the web, like the like the end of that movie, The Fly. <laughs> my head, my head poking out, going, "Help me!" I want one that looks like that. You know that meme of the Spider-Man ca- cartoon where he's like pointing at himself. Yeah. Like you, you. Uh-huh. That's what I want my sleeping bag to look like this time. You want the meme on it? <laughs> yeah, the meme on it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Mike, I hope you did your homework this time, because yep. even though you're Slumber Party's most tenured guest, you do forget a lot. <laughs> I forget all the time. But of course, you and I, for this question, are in the magical blockbuster that has every movie that has ever existed. We know we're renting 2002 Spider-Man, but we see a sign, and the sign says rent two movies, get one free, and I say, Mike... I'll hold our place in line. Go to the back. Get two other movies. Please don't pick another Spider-Man movie because we're going to cover them later. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> what two other movies should we watch on our Spider-Man 2002 trifecta rewatch? Okay. So I think for every episode, I'm going to try and do something like this where uh, I'm going to pick a spider movie and a superhero movie. Nice. Yeah. I get a little sort of thematic with it. So, first up is 1958's Earth vs. the Spider, which is just a really cool sort of atomic age giant monster movie made in America where these kids come across a cave that houses an enormous giant spider that gets out and wreaks havoc over the town and they have to roll out the tanks and the army comes and it's just a great time. It's, you know, 1958, so it's like... One of those Godzilla sort of ripoffs, you know, the lot of like American kaiju movies around the time were insect based. So you had like scorpions, ants, spiders, things like that. And Earth vs. the Spider is cool. And I, maybe it's got a little extra sort of place in my heart because there's an amazing poster where the spider has a skull for a head. And that was sort of the basis for a, one of the pieces of flash art that I got tattooed which is a skull that has like spider legs crawling out of it and everything so I really like this movie it's a fun one and uh, that's my first pick love it love it that sounds awesome okay I don't know if y'all are ready for the second pick but seeing as how Spider-Man is going to team up with Doctor Strange and there's a lot of great comics where he did team up with Doctor Strange like they hung out a lot. I am going to recommend the 1978 movie Doctor Strange. 
based on Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer really? Supreme. Yes. So there was a there was a made-for-TV movie that was supposed to be a backdoor pilot from Marvel Studios, and this is around the time when Spider-Man was on the air. They had a live-action Spider-Man on the air. Uh, Bill Bixby, The Incredible Hulk television show was popping off. That became incredibly successful, and they were constantly trying to figure out ways of how to incorporate new comic book characters into new TV shows. So they made a Doctor Strange movie. It's an hour and a half. Uh, it stars Jessica Walter as Morgan Le Fay, who oh is his God. enemy, and this guy Peter Hooten as Doctor Strange. There's a Wong in there. Like it's kind of, it's kind of good, guys. Like production value low, story concept very high, very cool stuff. I think you would dig it. I think everyone would pretty much dig it if you keep an open mind and realize this was made in the 70s and this is a very obscure psychedelic character. And it's, you know, even the Doctor Strange Benedict Cumberbund movie that we got, like, still hard to conceptualize Doctor Strange. Like, lots of weird shit going on in that universe with that character. But, I mean, definitely check this one out. I feel like it's a very much a forgotten one of those early superhero attempts and uh yeah it definitely has like a second life now on dvd and blu-ray that's amazing and the poster for this looks glorious oh my god <laughs> i did not know this existed <laughs> well these yeah. are these are great picks mike really really awesome you'll be on again a lot this month so Get ready. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for having me on for something other than Corey's. I really <laughs> appreciate it. So uh, plug away, Mike. Uh, Monster oh, That Made right. Us on a great run, but third time's a charm. Whatever you want to say. Yeah, so first and foremost, Monsters That Made Us with my co-host, The Invisible Dan Cologne. So thank you, and thanks for all the shows on the network that have been helping us out and promoting us and, and everything. It's been it's been great. I've you know really feeling it and um it's been helpful and thanks to everyone who's been listening to the monsters that made us that's that's uh so the show dan and i are going through the history of the universal monster movies we've been at it for about a year now every new episode is the last friday of every month once a month and uh you know, and we got some stuff. Hopefully, we're trying to plan some stuff in the new year for our Patreons, for some other things, trying to figure out where to take the show after we've done all the monster movies. So stay tuned to all that. And then I still, for some reason, have my other show going, Third Time's a Charm, where I look at the third installment of a franchise. Brian is my unofficial co-host over there. You can find him on most episodes. As I mentioned, we talked some New York uh, with the, the Muppets take Manhattan. Yeah, we're taking it back. Hey. <laughs> hey. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. But I've got other shows too. So with Joey Lewandowski, him and I have the Cage Club Prime, new shows of that this year. Prisoners of the Ghostland just came out on Blu-ray as the day we're recording this. So go watch that insane movie where Nick Cage has bombs strapped to his balls. I'm not kidding. What? Um, yep, he has. He's wearing a, a suit with bombs on it and two two on his testicles, two one on each hand. It's insane. One in his neck. It's all over. Uh, so watch that movie and listen to our episode. Joey and I also do podcasts about Keanu Reeves, Charlize Theron, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Elvis Presley movies. 
So check all that stuff out at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. And hopefully one day, Brian and I, we have a dream project that we are trying to work on that we hope to get to eventually. So there's been some recent developments with that this week that uh, I hope uh, we get to that one day. I, I hope so too. I hope so as well. Uh, that's It's an ambitious project, but one... I am looking forward, and that, that's all we'll reveal right now. So, Mike, thanks as always, and talk to you really soon. <laughs> Excelsior. <laughs> Hello, High School Slumber Party. Hi, this is uh, Kyle Reinfried calling in. Kyle! Thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it. Just saw you actually recently for uh, we went to go see Licorice Pizza. But do I actually have the Brian Rodriguez on the phone right now? Yes, this is me wow. on the high school dream phone, the teen dream phone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you called because I actually wanted to talk a little bit about Licorice Pizza, which is the new P.T. Anderson film. Mm-mm-mm. It was tasty. Well, we saw it because uh, Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman is in the film. He's the star. It's his first role ever. And we, of course, have done another podcast on the Cage Club Podcast Network, P.S. I Love Hoffman, talking about all the Phil Simmer Hoffman films. But it is also a high school film. There you go. Not a foodie film. Not a foodie film, despite foodie the title. Foodie scenes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, this was, hey, I love watching movies with you, talking movies with you. So, as you said, the fact of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie... And he's going back to San Fernando Valley in the 1970s. Great soundtrack. And then we get the acting debut of the son of our favorite actor and so many other terrific performances in it. It was just really fun seeing that movie with you. And uh, I just want to keep talking about it. So we're not going to spoil anything today. I think we're going to have an episode around Christmas time. Yeah, that's when it's going wide, right? Yeah, because it's only playing in New York and L.A. now. We actually recorded a quick after film uh, preview, non spoiler episode on PSL of Hoffman. So check that out. Uh, that'll really gear you up to watch the film. But but I wanted to uh, kind of talk to you now because, yeah, this is a teen film. Is every character a teen? No. It's not The Breakfast Club, but uh, Cooper Hoffman plays a teen and it's about a lot of. It's about teenagers and. Teenage drama and. Um... Yeah, just really, I, I, I mean, it kicks off in a high school, so you, you got your establishment right there, and yeah. Fuck off teenagers is a line that's uttered <laughs> in the film. But it also has a lot of, uh, how can I say, those teenage themes of like young love and... Yeah, just a whirlwind of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. And just like silly, um, you know, hey, we, you know, we're, we're friends since high school and we do still hang out with, uh, you know, a decent, I mean, our closest friends are still our high school friends. And it's just fun. This movie's fun in a, in a high school sense, too, because, I mean, one, one of the other characters is... Um, Cooper Hoffman plays Gary Valentine, and it's like his brother, so he's younger. I don't think he's in high school yet. But there's other high school characters, and it's just, I love them because they are, the characters are characters. 
the characters are characters. It takes place in the 70s in the San Fernando Valley. We've talked about so many films here in Nice Slum Parade that take place in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. and uh, The Karate Kid is All-Valley Karate Champion. <laughs> <laughs> so, many, so much other stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I can't wait to do our deep dive of the film. We might have another guest if we can, we can book them. You know, we have someone in mind. Yeah. Uh, it's a film that I think is going to get a lot of Oscar buzz. It's a film that... I don't know if it's going to be controversial or not. There were some cringeworthy moments for sure. But none of it was putting those cringeworthy things on a pedestal, which is important. No, for sure. For so sure. If you see a negative headline, don't let that dismay you. Like, let that, you know, go, go, go to the theater, check it out. At least that's our first reaction. We're both going to see it again before we do the episode here. So, Kyle, again. And it's doing well, really well already. Yeah, it's doing really well so far. I hope that continues. I hope people see it for the nuance and context of the film. If it does offend certain people, I do apologize. But we'll still cover it regardless on here. Yeah. Because that's what we do. So, thank you, Kyle, uh, for calling in. and. Uh... All right, my people will talk to your people. <laughs> oh, is this a negotiation? Is there any... Uh... Is Gucci. Speaking of that, Foodie Films coming back. Hopefully soon. <laughs> there's more food to eat in the world. And I believe it was someone who said way back when there's more to cut. So there better be more Foodie Films because there's more to cut. Yeah, God bless Norman Reinfried. <laughs> All right, Kyle, have a good one. You too. So that's our show for today. Big thank you to Mike Manzi, as always, but for just bringing such a vast comic book and superhero knowledge to the program. We talked a lot of Spider-Man. We're going to talk a lot of Spider-Man this month for Spider-Month. Deal with it. Also, hope Kyle and I did not spoil Liquor's Pizza. We had a lot of fun watching the movie together. We're going to see it again, let it sink in a little bit more, maybe book another guest, and around Christmas time do a full Liquor's Pizza episode. So thank Kyle for coming on for that in advance and for the little spiel he just did with me there. And thank you guys for listening to this pretty, pretty long episode. Once again, listen to our Hall of Fame episode. But Monday, not a Hall of Fame episode, not a Spider-Man episode, it's an AP episode, High School Slumber Party AP, where me and co-host Island Addington look at more modern teen films. And yes, the newest Spider-Mans are modern teen films, but we didn't cover it. We covered a different kind of hero. The film is Enola Holmes. Now, where to begin? My mother named me Enola, which backwards spells alone. And yet, we were always together. It was wonderful. She was my whole world. Which leads me on to the second thing you need to know. A week ago, I awoke. Mother? To find that my mother was missing, and she did not return. I'm presently on the way to collect my brothers, Mycroft and Sherlock. Yes, Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective, my genius brother. He will have all the answers. And Nola. Where's your hat and your gloves? Well, I have a hat. Just makes the head itch. And I have no gloves. My God. A wild woman brought up a wild child. Who will make her acceptable for society? She seems intelligent. There are two paths you can take, Anola. Yours, or the path others choose for you. It is time to find my mother. The game is afoot. <laughs> if I have to stay hidden from my brothers, I must become something unexpected. A lady.
So your homework is to watch Enola Holmes over the weekend. This is on Netflix. Eyes and I will be talking about it on Monday. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Can't wait for more Spider Month movies. But one more thing. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. Let's take it away with ugh, a song I talked about, a song I don't really love in theory, but love because of like what it is and what it represents. And that is Hero by the guy from Nickelback. His name is escaping me right now. Give me one second. Chad Kruger featuring Josie Scott. Later, dudes. It's over. Go home. Go.